It's Sunday, it's 7, and it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. Hi, everybody. I'm Murray Horwitz. Day after tomorrow, it's St. Patrick's Day, and we're going to start the celebration tonight with imported Irish tweed and good old American corn from Fibber McGee and Molly. A St. Patty's Day rescue from Have Gun Will Travel, Emerald Isle parody from Dennis Day and Mel Blanc, and three Irish tenors, but not the ones you may be used to hearing. Plus Barry Craig, Confidential Investigator, Dragnet, and We Redress a Wrong on Gunsmoke. And one of the greatest American actors of the 20th century, Henry Hull, brings Julius Caesar to life as you've never heard before in the NBC University theater production, The Ides of March, by Thornton Wilder. Oh yes, did I mention? It's March 15th. So whatever there was to beware of, it's over and done with. This late in the day, there's no need to worry about it, or for that matter, about anything else that went down in the last seven days. And as for the next seven, well, just postpone your concerns for a little while, relax, prick up your ears, and take a step into the world of your imagination, and into the past, when a trip to Paris was... A little less expensive than it is today, as you'll hear in the adventure called The Blue Madonna Matter. It's a story we haven't played in a generation here on the big broadcast, and it comes from February 22nd, 1959, CBS, AFRTS, and yours truly, Johnny Dollar. From Hollywood, it's time now for... Johnny Dollar. George Reed here, Johnny. Well, George, I'm really glad to talk to you. Oh? Why do you say it that way? Because every insurance case I handle for that company of yours pays me a nice fat fee. And right now I can use a little extra cash. Well, now, Johnny... So tell me all. What's Floyd's of England upset about this time? Well, I'm not sure. Uh Uh-oh, here we go again. But, Johnny, I just received a transatlantic telephone call from Paris, France, from a man who wanted to contact you but didn't know where to call you. And he identified himself only as Le Chagris. Ah, uh, Le Chagris. It's French, Johnny. No. And I believe it means the gray cat. Yeah. And George, the name fits him. You know him, then? His real name is de Marsac. He probably knows more about the dark alleys and back streets of Paris. Oh? Uh-huh. Yeah, and about the people. In other words, the underworld. What did he call about? He mentioned the Blue Madonna. The what? It's a painting, Johnny. A small oil painting by a modern artist named Vincent Bardot. It's owned by Mr. Kingsley Holland down in Philadelphia. Yeah? It hangs in the Gavin Galleries, and we've insured it for $12,000. Well, what did he have to say about it? Only that you're to call him. His number there in Paris is uh, Orleans 57722. Uh-huh. That he has some very interesting information for you about that painting. Oh, sure. That he'll be glad to give me for a price. Exactly. I can't for the life of me figure what his interest is in it. If there were anything amiss, I'm sure the gallery would have called me. George, if you knew that character as well as I do, you'd okay my expense account without even looking at it and be willing to pay me that big fee I was talking about. What do you mean? Want to make a bet? What kind of a bet? I'll give you odds of ten to one that whatever's hanging in that gallery down there in Philadelphia is not the Blue Madonna. What? Now, look, Johnny, good heavens. George, I'll be talking to you. Bob Bailey, in the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account, America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator... Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. And now, act one of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. 
expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar. To Floyd's of England, North American office, Hartford, Connecticut. Following is an account of expenses incurred during my investigation of the Blue Madonna matter. Expense account item one, $12 even for a phone call to my underworld contact in Paris, France. A man by the name of Dumarsac, who calls himself the Grey Cat. Oh, oui, Monsieur Dollar. This is your old, your very dear friend, Le Chagri. Very dear friend, huh? Now listen, you telephoned George Reed that you have some real hot information about a painting his company insured. Ah, oui, Le Madonna Bleu. What did you call the Blue Madonna? Okay. How much do you want this time? Oh, Monsieur, you touch me to the quick. Well, one might think that I slave and suffer and risk my life on your behalf only for money. How much, to Marsac? See, uh, $1,000. 1000 Look, if your info's worth anything, I'll send you a check for 50 bucks. 50 bucks? No. Uh, 900 Okay, I'll make it 75 But, monsieur, uh, 750 How about an even 100 500 Two. Four? Three, that's final. Oh, please. 200 Okay, 200 Oui. Eh? No. It's all settled. Two hundred bucks. Now, what about the Blue Madonna? Uh-huh, yes. It is now here in Paris. Yeah, where? In the shop of Monsieur Dubesson on the Rue de Pas de Lemoule. Dubesson? Huh. You sure it isn't just a copy that he'll try to foist it off on some wealthy sucker? <laughs> Dubesson is a crook. An evil crook. But he is an honest one. Oh, sure. Yes, and he knows the works of art. Also, he's very clever. To get his price, he will wait until the real Madonna is discovered missing. If it really is, that's what I'll check on now. And then you will you will send me the five hundred dollar, my very dear friend. Two hundred, remember? Ah, we we I cheated myself. But Monsieur, yeah. Uh, suppose I could find out who smuggled the painting into him. Eh? Fine. That would be uh, worth a lot to you, no? Say a thousand. We'll see. I'll be talking to you. Item 2, 420. I phoned to my old pal, Foster Harmon, down in Sarasota, Florida. Told him I'd pay his fare if he'd grab the first plane out and meet me in Philadelphia at the Bellevue Stratford Hotel. I knew that if anybody could identify the genuine painting, he could. Item 3, 940 for my own transportation to the city of brotherly love. Item 4, 950 cocktails and dinner for the two of us there at the Bellevue. Yes, the Blue Madonna is one of Vincent Bardot's best-known works. I don't think there's another living artist who could so effectively use various shades of just one color. But uh, what about it, Johnny? Well, first thing in the morning, I want you to come along with me and take a look at it. It's in the Gavin Galleries, isn't it, up on Walnut Street? Yeah, at least it's supposed to be. Supposed? Now, all I want you to do is take a good look at it, then reserve any comments until after we get out of the place. And... That's all. Well, but Johnny, Meantime, I... I want to check with the owner of that painting. The telephone directory gave me Kingsley Holland's address. Item 4, 620 for a cab to a small apartment house out in West Philadelphia. Holland turned out to be, well, I'd say he was about 30, short, lean, and nervous. With the surly expression of a man who feels the world hasn't done right by him. Yeah? You mean you're interested in buying the blue banana? Well, it, uh, it all depends, Mr. Holland. Uh-huh. Uh, look, Dollar, uh, that what you said your name is? Yes, that's right, Johnny Dollar. Hmm. Sounds familiar. Uh, well, anyway, listen. Yeah? That gallery's got a price of fifteen oh eighteen thousand on it. But if you want to buy it direct from me, and right now, I'll give it to you for twelve. 
Save yourself a few thousand bucks, and it'll save me having to pay them their 20%. But if you've already commissioned the gallery to sell it for you... So, I'll tell them I changed my mind, that I want to keep it. Then when they find out that I've sold it, well, I'm trying to catch up with me and collect. Because me, I'll be right back in little old gay Paris. Back in Paris? Sure, I'd be there still, only I ran out of money. 12000 huh? That's exactly what it's insured for. And that's what they appraised it for when I got it from my uncle's estate. <laughs> with all his money, what does he die and leave me with but a lousy painting? Well, do you want it? Uh, let me think about it. I'm uh, staying at the Bellevue Stratford. Sure, sure. Just don't tell them at the Gavin Gallery about our little deal, huh? But those crooks don't know, won't hurt it. Crooks? You think for a minute all that stuff they've got laying around the place is genuine? But the Blue Madonna is. You're sure? Huh? What do you mean by that? Just uh, stick around, Mr. Holland. Any reason why I shouldn't? I don't know. Is there? Now, wait a minute, Dollar. I'll be in touch with you. Now, act two of yours truly, Johnny Dollar and the Blue Madonna Matter. At Kingsley Holland, the owner of the painting recognized my name. I thought so. And if a switch in that painting had been made and he knew about it, well, I'd do well to look out for him. Yeah, the more I thought about it, the more certain I became that whatever hung in the Gavin Galleries was not the Blue Madonna. Item five, another six bucks for a taxi back to my hotel. Item six, five eighty, breakfast the next morning for Foster Harmon and myself. By ten o'clock, we were at the Gavin Galleries, looking at a pretty modern, but I must say beautiful painting. Amazing, Johnny. Amazing. The most extraordinary... Well, I, I just can't believe it. Can't believe what, Foster? That it's the real thing or just a good copy? Oh, good morning, sir. That's just I'll it. You see... I've these gentlemen. Johnny... Hold it, Foss. Uh, that painting, you know, is a genuine Bardot. Yeah? My name is Johnny Dollar. This is Mr. Foster Harmon. Gentlemen, I'm Arnold Gavin. Um... You're uh, interested in buying the Blue Madonna? If this is really it. Uh, Johnny, listen. Wait, Foster. Uh, what is the price of it, Mr. Gavin? Uh, 20000 Mr. Dollar, did you say? Yeah, but... Uh, wow. Haven't you got a Bardot that's a bit cheaper? His Laconic Lagoon is priced at 10000 Holy. <laughs> well, how about a copy of this? <laughs> Bardot has never allowed his works to be copied. Johnny, listen. Yeah, Foster, looks like this stuff is too rich for our blood. No. Come on, let's go back to the Bellevue Stratford. No, listen. Uh, perhaps there's something else that might interest you. No, I'm afraid not, but thank you. That's quite all right. Now, uh, suppose, uh, look, suppose I come back later. Johnny, listen. Come on, will you? Yeah, I'll uh, see you tomorrow again. Now, Johnny, just uh, take it easy. Well, Foss? It's a fraud, Johnny. It's a copy. I'm sure of it. Hey, hey, hey. Did you say that blue Madonna's a copy, mister? Yes. Wait, wait. Well, I thought you were looking at it kind of funny there in the gallery. Yes, sir. It's a fraud. Foster. Now, you don't mind my asking, uh, who are you? Uh, my name is Foster Harmon. Harmon? From the John Ringling Museum down in Florida? That's right. Well, then you ought to know. Now, just a minute, mister. Say, uh, aren't you Johnny Dollar, the insurance investigator? So what? Who are you? Me? Well, I'm Rupe Alloway of Transworld News Service. News Service? Oh, fine. Yeah, I'll see you, boys, and thanks a lot. Well, Foss, it looks like you opened your mouth and stuck my foot in it. Well, I'm sorry, Johnny, but what I said is true. That blue Madonna is an imitation, a phony. That much I already knew. At least I was pretty sure of it. But don't you see the amazing thing? Well, Johnny, that copy is so perfect, so exactly in the style of Vincent Bardot, 
Even to little things, little idiosyncrasies that even the finest copyist couldn't match. Certain minute details about an artist's work are as distinctive, as impossible to copy as a man's own fingerprints. Yeah, well... What I'm trying to say is that if I didn't know every brush mark on the original... Okay, Foss, forget it. Forget it? Hey, listen. Kingsley Holland, the owner, and I wouldn't trust him for a minute, I think he knows who I am. If so, and if he knows that painting is just a copy, well, he's pretty sure to figure out what I'm doing here. Johnny, he must know it's a copy. If he gave it to the galleries to sell. Perhaps. Or maybe the switch was made after it was hung there. Then what you're saying is that either one of them could be responsible for the fraud. That's right. How well do you know the Gavin galleries? Well, they're not very big. You could see that for yourself. And, of course, they're rather new in the business. I think I'd better get a rundown on this Arnold Gavin while we're waiting at the hotel. Waiting? What for? Well, you, you plant a couple of seeds. You hope that one of them will sprout. I'm afraid I don't understand. Foss, I told both of them who I am in the hope they'd guess at why I'm here. I also gave them reason to suspect I think that blue Madonna's a phony. Well, I'm afraid that I may have led Arnold Gavin to feel that way. Same thing. I also made it very plain to them that I'm staying at the Bellevue Stratford. In other words... Good heavens, Johnny, if you mean what I think you do... Yeah? Like what, Foss? You think that one of them, the crook, will come to the hotel and try to... Don't you see, Johnny, knowing that you're on to him, he, he might try to kill you. Can you think of a better way to bring him out in the open? Johnny... Come on, let's get back to the hotel and wait. And now, act three of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. After all, there was no reason to drag Foster any further into this mess, although I knew he began to see it through. So I paid him for all his expenses, that's item seven, 151 even, and sent him on back to Sarasota. Item eight, ten cents for a phone call to Sergeant Jerry Hawkins at police headquarters. About mid-afternoon, he called me back. Boy, did you ever start a riot. Well, what'd you find out for me about Gavin and Holland? Well, Holland's just a lazy kid that's been trying to live off his relatives all his life. And Gavin? Okay, so far as we know. But listen, you seen the papers? No. The story about that phony painting is on every wire service in the country. All you can see in the headlines is that name Bardot. And I don't mean Bridget. Johnny, you and that Foster Harmon ought to collect a publicity fee. Are you holding Gavin or Holland? Well, what on? Sure, the boys have questioned both of them, but unless we can show some evidence that one of them pulled the switch... Johnny, you got any ideas? Yeah, Jerry. Suddenly, I think maybe I have. Well, then start talking so I can make a pitch. No, I don't think you will. What do you mean, if you know who did it? Oh, I didn't say that. But, uh, Jerry, I've got a hunch, a real potent one. And if it's right... Yeah? Well, read tomorrow's papers. Huh? Item nine, half a buck for an evening paper and a tip for the bellboy who brought it up to me. Yeah, the sergeant was right. This was the most free advertising any artist has had in years. Prices on genuine Bardot's were skyrocketing. As for the fake blue Madonna... I put in a fast call for Paris. But before the operator could get it through... Yeah? Arnold Gavin, Mr. Dollar. Well, Mr. Gavin... Do you see what has happened? Have you seen the papers? I sure have. And the police have closed my shop, my galleries. Can you blame them? But don't you understand? I've had offers of up to 30,000 for the Madonna. I've received wires offering me nearly 20,000 for the other Bardot. uh, the, The real one. No kidding. Well, I'll show you how much I'm kidding... 
I've cabled Bardo to paint some more for me. Paint anything. Don't you see? After all this publicity, we'll make a million. So it was you that rigged this whole thing, huh, Gavin? I, Mr. Holland? Why, of course not. Sure, to raise the price of some of your lousy paintings. How can you say that? You who gave me that copy. Expert, huh? You trying to tell me you didn't know that was a copy? No. It was only this morning when the authority from Sarasota, uh, when I called in the people from the museums here in Philadelphia. Do you know what they said? What? And it better be good. They said the only one who could have made that copy... Wait a minute. The only artist in the world who could have possibly... Hold it. Hold everything. Holland, you said you got that penny from your uncle's estate. That's right. It was willed to me. Where did your uncle get it? Why, for... Well, listen. I'm listening. Dollar that Madonna was smuggled into. Smuggled? That's right. But by whom? Well, believe it or not... I think I can tell you who. And if this is my call to Paris, well, maybe I can even tell you where he is now. Johnny Dollar. This is your dear and faithful friend, Le Chagrin. Good. Now listen. And for the information I can give you this time, you will have to pay me a vast sum of money. You're about to tell me that the Blue Madonna was smuggled into Paris by none other than the artist himself. By Vincent Bardot. Exactly. So that should be worth it, but how did you know? All right. All I want to know now is where is he? You know. (laughs) He's not in Paris. Where is he? For a hundred bucks? A hundred and fifty? Three hundred. Oh, for that much, I'll find out for myself. Goodbye. No, no, no. Okay, two hundred or I hang up on you. Well, only for you, my best, my oldest friend. Where? He is aboard the plane for the United States. I might have guessed it. He has the Madonna Bleu with him. He received the cable this morning. Great. I'll send you a check. You hear any of that, Mr. Gavin? Holland? Uh, yes, but I'm afraid I don't understand. Oh, I sure don't. Then maybe this call will help you. Headquarters? Sergeant Jerry Hawkins. Yes, sir. Sergeant Hawkins. You can have the boys in New York pick him up or wait for his plane to arrive here in Philadelphia. Johnny. If you're sure you really have any charges against him. What? Yeah, he's on his way in from Paris. The guy who painted the copy of the Blue Madonna. Or maybe this is really the original over here. Huh? Well, at any rate, he'll have the other copy with him. So do you want to tell the papers or shall I? Look, will you make sense? Oh, and his name is Bardot. Bardot? That's right, Vincent Bardot. Well? You you mean that he... that he painted two of them? Sure, with probably something like this in mind. But I can't and believe... And look, look what it's done for him. Put him on the map. Anything he paints now will net him a fortune. And I don't think you'll suffer particularly either, Mr. Gavin. Well, no. As for you, Holland, well, you'll get a lot more than you thought for that painting of yours. <laughs> Man, what a fast... Sure... But you know something? What, Mr. Dollar? Hmm. I just wonder if Le Chagris was in on this thing with him from the beginning. Le Chagris? So help me, I wouldn't put it beyond him. Sure. Sure he was in with Bardot. And probably collecting plenty from him. Anyhow, the insurance company is not anything. But I hope they'll be a lot more careful the next time they insure a painting. Any so-called original. Expense account total, including 400 for Le Chagris, the hotel, and the trip back to Hartford, $620 even. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar.
Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, starring Bob Bailey, originates in Hollywood and is written, produced, and directed by Jack Johnstone. Heard in our cast were G. Stanley Jones, Forrest Lewis, Harry Bartell, Joseph Kearns, Bert Holland, and Byron Kane. Be sure to join us next week, same time and station, for another exciting story of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. From Washington's birthday in 1959, the Blue Madonna Matter, from yours truly, Johnny Dollar, and from the big broadcast on WAMU 88.5, I'm Murray Horwitz. Technically, St. Patrick's Day is less than 30 hours away, so here we go. One of the greatest of all Irish cultural traditions is that of the Irish tenor. I've never understood exactly why we don't celebrate Irish baritones and sopranos and mezzos in quite the same way, but let's move on. As so many imported traditions, the Irish tenor is an American cultural asset as well. Think of Dennis Day's solos on the Jack Benny program, and in this century, the way Ronan Tynan's performances brought the country together following the 9-11 attacks. Well, we're about to hear from three of the greatest Irish-American tenors of all time, and they were all stars on old-time radio. The first is, no, you know what? I'm going to let another Irish-American, one of the really great radio and TV announcers, Ed Herlihy, introduce them to you. In 1957, his network, NBC, celebrated the 30th anniversary of its radio network with a series of anthology shows with broadcast highlights of the previous three decades. During this same week, that year, Mr. Herlihy emceed the St. Patrick's Day edition of Recollections at 30. Here's an excerpt. Time for Recollections. The National Broadcasting Company invites you to relax and reminisce with recollections from the early days of radio. In this special series, we delve into the vast NBC library of sound to relive the memorable moments of radio's past, the stars who entertained you then, the special events that thrilled you. And to guide us through these priceless recollections, here is Ed Hurleyhe. Cade made the folder. Sure, and it is indeed Ed Hurleyhe with recollections. That opening phrase was Gaelic, and it means a thousand welcomes to you all. Over the years in NBC's history, there have been a good many programs and a fair share of Emerald Isle talent before our microphones. And it is all preserved in NBC's Library of Sound, where I've been searching for it the past week. Now, not everything on tonight's show is Irish, but the first performer is indeed. A tenor this lad was, and a great one. A greatest ever to leave Ireland to bring pleasure to the rest of the world. So back we go to 1938 and Rudy Valley's introduction to him. To Ireland on her day, a toast. And to the Irish, one of their great men. With the possible exception of Paderewski, no artist has come to represent a people so completely and so well as this man. John McCormick. Thank you, Mr. Valley. And in return for those very flattering words, let me wish you an Irish wish. May the chicken never be hatched that will scratch on your grave. Thank you, Mr. McCormick. And may you be half an hour in heaven before the devil knows you're dead. But <laughs> well, if that's the game we want to play, Mr. Valley, try this toast on one of your girlfriends. 
Here's to myself and one other. And may that one other be she who drinks to herself and one other. And may that one other be me. And now, may we do away with the toasts and get on with the music? We certainly may. I'll sing the garden where the praties grow. It's an old camellia. And incidentally, praties are potatoes. All right, then. Have you ever been in love, me boys, or have you felt a pain? I'd sooner be in jail myself than be in love again. For the girl I loved was beautiful, I'd have you all to know. And I met her in the garden where the praties grow. She was just the sort of creature, boys, that nature did intend. To walk right through the world, me boys, without the Grecian bend. Nor did she wear a chignon, I'd have you all to know. And I met her in the garden where the praties grow Says I, me pretty Kathleen I'm tired of single life And if you've no objection Sure I'll make you my sweet wife She answered me right modestly And curtsied very low You're welcome to the garden Where the praties grow She was just the sort of girl Boys that nature did intend To walk right through the world Me boys without the Grecian bend Nor did she wear a chignon I'd have you all to know And I met her in the garden Where the praties grow The parents, they consented, and we're blessed with children three. Two boys just like their mother, and the girls, the image of me. And now we're going to train them up the way they ought to go, for to dig in the garden where the praties grow. She was just the sort of creature, boys, that nature did intend, to walk right through the world, me boys, without the Grecian bend. Nor did she wear a chignon, I'd have you all to know. And I met her in the garden where the praties that was a priceless treasure from NBC's Library of Sound, a song that John McCormick did on the air in 1938. Anyone who was an autograph hunter between 1925 and 1930 surely remembers the silver mask tenor. He was the Sinatra of his day, all right, singing with one of radio's first commercial programs for the Goodrich Rubber Company. And though he was a native New Yorker, he was, like so many tenors, of Irish descent. If you've been wondering for 30 years why he wore a silver mask in all public appearances, it was simply because an announcer happened to describe the tenor as a man of mystery. No one knows his name, he said. We call him the man in the silver mask. Then a deluge of mail poured into NBC from curious listeners who wanted to know more about him. So from that point on, it was decided to play along with the gag. And so Joe White always wore a sterling silver mask wherever he appeared. And here he is on St. Patrick's Day, 1926. Have you ever heard the story of how Ireland got its name? I'll tell you so you'll understand from whence old Ireland came. No wonder that we're proud of that dear land across the sea. For here's the way my dear old mother told the tale to me. Sure, a little bit of heaven fell from out of the sky one day and nestled on the ocean in a spot so far away. 
And when the angels found it, sure it looked so sweet and fair. They said, suppose we leave it, for it looked so peaceful there. So they sprinkled it with a stardust, just to make the shamrocks grow. It's the only place you'll find them, no matter where you go. Then they darkened it with silver to make its lake so grand. And when they had it finished, sure they called it Ireland. Tis a dear old land of fairies and of wondrous wishing wells, and nowhere else on that green earth have they such lakes and dells. No wonder that the angels loved its shamrock-bordered shores. Tis a little bit of a heaven, and I love it more and more. Sure, a little bit of a heaven. the ocean in a spot so far away and when the angels found it sure it looked so sweet and dead they said suppose we leave it for it looked so peaceful there so they sprinkled it with stardust just to make the shamrocks grow only place you'll find them, no matter where you go. Then they darkened it with silver to make its lake so grand. And when they had it finished, sure silver mast tenor of 1926, an old friend of mine. Incidentally, Joe is still hale and hearty and especially happy that his son, Bobby White, is following in his dad's footsteps. We're going to turn to another great Irish tenor, Morton Downey, who introduces his own song. I'd like to sing a song that my wife found for me in England. It's a beautiful A.A. Milne poem about a little lad named Christopher Robin. An Englishman set it to music. As a poem, it's lovely. But as a song, well, it's great. Our kids were crazy about it. And so I hope all the listeners in will like it as much as the Downey family does. Listen. Christopher Robin is saying his prayers. Little boy kneels at the foot of... Droops on his little hands, little gold head. Hush, hush, whisper, who dares? Christopher Robin is saying his prayers. God bless Mummy, I know that's right. 
Wasn't it fun in the bath tonight? The cold so cold and the hot so hot. God bless Daddy. I most forgot. If I open my fingers a little bit more, I can see Nanny's dressing gown on the door. It's a beautiful blue button. It hasn't a hood. God bless Nanny and make her good. Mine has a hood and I lie in bed. And I pull the hood right over my head. And I close my eyes and I curl up small. And nobody knows that I'm there at home. Oh, thank you, God, for a lovely day. And what was the other I had to say? I said, bless Daddy. What can it be? Oh, now I remember it. God bless me. Little boy kneels at the foot of the bed. Droops on his little hand. Little gold head. Hush, hush, whisper, who dares? Christopher Robin is saying his prayer. Thank you, radio audience. Thank you very, very much. That was Morton Downey as he performed 19 years ago on NBC. Now, if you've enjoyed tonight's recollections, I certainly would appreciate hearing from you. And this is how you get in touch with me. Address Ed Herlihy, H-E-R-L-I-H-Y, care of the National Broadcasting Company, 30 Rockefeller Plaza, Radio City, New York. And please, while you've got your pencil in hand, make a note to hear next week's special program when President Roosevelt was first inaugurated and all of those younger ones who may wonder what radio and the times were like then will be able to sample on this show that historic inauguration together with other great radio highlights of 1933. So, until then, this is Ed O'Hurley, hoping that the happy memories of tonight will last until we meet again, seven days hence. Good night, everyone. Ed Hurley has been your host on Recollection. Join him next week at this time for more highlights in the history of radio broadcasting. This is Fred Collins. Recollections is an NBC Radio Network production directed by Bob Bauer. From March 19, 1957, and announcer Ed Hurley, three legendary Irish American tenors, John McCormick, Morton Downey, and the silver-masked tenor, Joseph White, as they were recalled by the anthology series, Recollections at 30. Top of the program to you, 
and a happy St. Patrick's Day from all of us here at the Big Broadcast. Never ones to waste a holiday hook, we've got a Fibber McGee and Molly show for you that acknowledges McGee's Irish roots, as well as his know-it-all scheming. It comes from a couple of years after World War II. It was a time when the ready-to-wear men's suits we mostly see today were just coming into widespread use. Most middle-to-upper-class American males, I imagine, were still getting their suits made by their tailors. You paid one price for the material, the goods, and another for the suit-making, the needle. By the way, your tailor would ask you, have you got the goods? So I think that's where that expression originated. There are references to the cowboy character Hopalong Cassidy, to the actor Pat O'Brien, and to the Indian-American actor Sabu. Oh, and this show comes from three days after the thoroughbred Faultless upset Kentucky Derby winner Phalanx in the Preakness Stakes. You'll need to know that. From May 13th, 1947, and NBC, it's an episode sometimes called Smuggled Irish Tweed, from Fibber McGee and Molly. The Johnson Wax Program with Fibber McGee and Molly. The makers of Johnson's Wax Products for Home and Industry present Fibber McGee and Molly with Bill Thompson, Gail Gordon, Arthur Q. Bryan, Gene Carroll, and me, Harlow Wilcox. The script is by Don Quinn and Phil Leslie. Music by the King's Men and Billy Mills Orchestra. You wouldn't think a man could get into much trouble simply walking from 79 Wistful Vista to the Elks Club at 14th and Oak Streets, would you? Well, if that's what you think, you don't know our Mr. McGee of Fibber McGee and Molly. <laughs> oh, I had the Cocker Spaniel, and her name was Little Nellie. Used to roll upon her back so we could scratch her on the stomach. <laughs> the monkey and the coconuts. Gotta get that pivot tooth tightened. Getting so I hiss like a skillet full of salt pork. If I ever get it. Hey, buddy. Who said that? Me, Mac. Over here in the doorway. Huh? Oh, hi, bud. If this is a stick-up, you need a little more experience. I'm flattered in the copper's arches. Nah, nah, nah. This ain't no stick-up, pal. I want to do you a favor. A likely story. Guys, don't stop guys in doorways to do guys favors. You think I just come in from Peoria on a load of hay or something? <laughs> Not you, brother. I know a city man when I see one. And what I got here wouldn't interest no yokels. What do you mean? What do you got? And if you're going to try and sell me a genuine sable coat that you smuggled out of Russia in a bucket of borscht... <laughs> You're barking up the wrong citizen. Look, Mac, that hot burst stuff is strictly a racket, see? This is legit. Come here. I don't want to broadcast this. Okay, but I don't... I've been waiting here all morning for some guy to come past that looks like he knew a real hand-woven Irish tweed when he's seen it. Irish tweed? Yeah. Hand-woven? Yeah, yeah. No kidding. Three bolts of the finest homespun Irish tweed that ever come out of Donegal, pal. Frankly, I, uh, smuggled it in, see? In that case, include me out, bud. Smuggling is illegal. It's cheating the government. Look, Mac, leave us be logical. Who is the government? The government is the people. Who is the people? Me and you. If we cheat ourselves, who cares? <laughs> I got three bolts of Irish tweed you can have for peanuts. Me mother needs the money. Where you got it? Down the alley in the empty uh, rubbish can. Mm. Come on, let me show you. This is a great body. 
the alley, Molly. Yeah. And when he lifts the lid off of that empty rubbish can, there it was. Three bolts of the most beautiful Irish tweed you ever scratched your fingers on. Look at it. Hand-woven. Mm-hmm. He says I could have the three bolts for ten bucks a bolt, and I played it cagey, see? I says it's too much, pretending I wasn't interested. Yeah. So he says if ten bucks a bolt is too much, I could have I could have all three for thirty-five bucks. <laughs> so I grabs it. Dearie, remember that picture in the photo album of you as a little boy? Playing horse with a harness around your shoulders and your brother Mickey holding the reins? Yeah, but what that got to do with this... Your part? brother knew you better than I do. He played it safe. I don't get the... McGee, this so-called Irish tweet is not worth the thread to make it into fishnets. It's junk. <laughs> you think so, eh? You think this guy would have risked smuggling it in from Ireland if it wasn't worth good dough? How do you know he smuggled it in from Ireland? He showed me his mother's picture that he was going to send the money home to. <laughs> How do you know it was his mother? It said so right underneath the picture. Whistler's mother. Oh. The guy's name was Patrick Michael Whistler. Listen, my little pigeon. <laughs> Whistler's mother is a famous painting. Yeah. If her son were living, he'd be 113 years old. Oh, by George, he don't look it. <laughs> he handled these, these three heavy bolts of tweed like they were nothing. <laughs> I'll bet he did, all right. What's done is done, dearie. What are you going to do with it? Make a few bucks on it. Sell it to a few friends. Ought to be 25 yards to a bolt. That's 75 yards. Sell it for maybe 10 bucks a yard. That's $750. Minus 35, 715 bucks profit. Wow, what an investment. Let me see that cloth again. Here, take a look. You see how loose wove it is? You see them little twigs and stuff in it? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can see why Ireland stayed neutral in the war. Nobody dared get into an argument wearing stuff like this. Well, you women don't know much about tweeds. That's strictly a man's material. It's outdoorsy. Well, it can't go outdoorsy too quicksy for measy. You wait and see how it makes up, kiddo. I'd better measure it and see how much I can keep for myself. You got a tape measure? There's one in my sewing basket upstairs. Lena will get it for you. Oh, swell. Hey, Lena. Oh, Lena. I got the tape measure right here, Mr. McGee. I've been checking myself, and I'm a perfect 36. Yes, exactly, honey. Thirty around the middle and six around the neck. Yeah, but Lena... Oh, I always had wonderful proportions, like the Venus de Mildew, people said. (laughs) You know, I won a bathing beauty contest once in Cleveland. You did? I was Miss Shaker Heights of 1926. (laughs) I had a real good offer from the movies, too. Oh, not really, Lena. An offer from the movies? Yes, they wanted me to play opposite Barbara Stanwyck. They said they'd never seen nobody as opposite Barbara as I was. But did you ever actually work in pictures, Lena? Well, not actually, no. I didn't think it was dignified. They just wanted me to be a standby. Stand in? (laughs) Yes, a stand in. Undignified, Lena. Lots of stand-ins have become stars, you know. Well, I wouldn't have, honey. They wanted me to stand in for a horse in the Skip Along Hassidy picture. <laughs> Gosh, and I knew I'd never get to be a horse. <laughs> no, you're a little dark for a Palomino, Lena. Okay. Hey, take a look at this Irish tweed material I just bought. Beautiful, eh? Is that Irish tweed, Mr. McGee? Yeah. Well, goodness me. Wouldn't my papa love some of that? He would, eh? Mm. Was your father Irish by birth, Lena? No, by extraction, honey. <laughs> After he had his teeth pulled, he had the most beautiful brogue you ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> well, call me unless you want something. <laughs> Thank you.
Hey, Molly, I just measured this cloth. It's only 60 yards, but at 10 bucks a yard, that's 600 bucks. You know, the cloth I got from the guy in the alley? Yeah. Not bad for a morning's work, eh? Look, dearie, 60 yards of cloth will make an awful lot of suits. And in this case, I do mean awful. <laughs> but what makes you think anybody will buy it? Because my friends know clothes, that's why. Take Wilcox, for instance, happiest dresser in town. <laughs> He'll knock me down to get four yards of this tweed. He'd probably knock you down for just suggesting it. <laughs> and Doc Gamble, now there's a guy who really needs a new suit. He always looked like he'd got dressed in the wrong upper berth with the train pulling in. I don't know, McGee. He goes to the best tailors in town. Yeah, he goes there. And you know what? They give him a 25% discount if they don't have to put their labels in his coats. That guy could get nine fittings on a $300 suit, put it on, and get pinched for vagrancy outside the shop. Why, if he ever... Come in. Well, Heavenly Days, it's the good doctor himself. Come in, doctor. Thank you, my dear. Hello, Bucklewart. You look well pleased with yourself today. You must have had Faultless in the Prinktus. No. No, he got tweeds in the alley, doctor. I beg your pardon? Tell me something, Cebu. Cebu? Elephant boy. <laughs> I don't like to get personal, but did you see the Prinktus? <laughs> to get personal, but how much did the upholster blackmail you for that slipcover you're wearing? He doesn't like to get personal, he says. Oh, that's all right, my dear. I see so much politeness in the course of my professional day that his vulgarity is rather refreshing. Thank you. What was the question again? Gargantua? <laughs> Gargantua. That wasn't in the preakness. <laughs> I was asking, my dear medico, what you had to lay on the line for that double-breasted awning you got on. That beach umbrella with sleeves. I think that's a very handsome suit, McGee. Needs a little pressing, perhaps, but nice material. Frankly, my boy, it's none of your business. But this suit set me back $150. It has a concealed pocket in the vest where I carry a loaded revolver. So if you have any more insulting questions, I suggest you precede them with a brief prayer. being insulting, Fatso, I'm going to do you a favor. That's what Hitler said just before he marched into Poland. <laughs> well, show him the goods, dearie, and then jump back. Goods? Take a gander at this bowl of hand-woven Irish tweed, Ducky. Imagine yourself in the Easter parade wearing a suit made of that. In the princess? Yeah. <laughs> Why, you'd have every rich millionaire in town breaking his leg so he could get to know you. Mm-hmm. Irish tweed, you say? Yeah. yeah, they made it strictly for export, Doctor. A proud people, the Irish. I see what you mean. Where'd you get it, Sonny? He bought it from a man in a doorway. From a guy that smuggled it in, butcher boy. Going to sell it at a sacrifice to a few close friends. And I haven't got a friend that's any closer than you are. Ten dollars a yard, doctor. I'll take three yards. What? You will? You mean you really like this material, doctor? For my purpose, it's perfect. You see, I frequently have calls late at night. Have to drive out into the country. Bad weather, bad road. Oh, I get it. You want a material that's warm and wears good, eh? No, when I get stuck in the mud, I like to have something to throw under the wheel. <laughs> Send it over to me any time, McGee. Good day. To throw under his wheels in the mud. That's what he thinks of your Irish tweed, dear. <laughs> Don't kid yourself, Snooky. He just says that so I wouldn't raise the price when I seen he wanted it. Hey, I better pull down the window shade so the sun don't fade this stuff. You know, some of these high-class materials are like... Dad, wrap that dead red window shade. 
I gotta fix that thing one of these days. There's no hurry, dearie. I stop leaping three feet every time it goes up. Yeah. Now I just twitch a little. Yeah. I'll stop at the hardware store sometime and get. Hello, up. folks. Remember me, the man who sells the stuff to raise the dough to buy the time to put you on so I can come in and sell the stuff. <laughs> You're just the guy I wanted to see, Junior. You're one of the few fellows around here who knows good material. Yes, and I want to talk to you about that. If you can't get me out on a laugh once in a while, Racine will start thinking I'm... No, 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 Mr. Wilcox. (laughs) He means clothing material, not comedy material. Although on second thought, maybe it is. You know a good Irish tweed when you see it, Junior? Sure. What's that got to do with it, McGee? What do you mean, what's that got to do with it? This is a fine tweed. Here, Junior, take a look at this bolt of cloth. What is it? A good question. Boy, this is the finest Irish tweed ever brung, brought, ever imported out of Ireland. <laughs> Close your eyes and smell that material, Junior. It's got the very fragrance of old Ireland. Well, I don't know if Can't I Can't you just in. picture those happy weavers singing Meet Me in the Garden Where the Praties Grow? <laughs> As the mist rises over the peat bogs and the wet smacks of tourists kissing the Blarney Stone come wafting across the River Shannon and the little people picking shamrocks on the road to County Clare and the pretty spalpeens lacing up their shillelaghs for a game of morning in the bright morning. <laughs> jumps off the roof of Gromit's Chinese theater. <laughs> well, it just smells like cloth to me, pal. Where'd you get it? He bought it from a man in a doorway. Son, I'm in a position to let you have a few yards of this at the reduced rate of ten bucks a yard. Oh, I don't think Now, I'd wait, be. boy. Don't give me your decision right off the bat. Think it over. Thought you were a little fanatic about quality merchandise. Oh, I am, After but... all, Mr. Wilcox, why is Johnson's Wax so outstanding? Why, because it's the finest product of its kind, of course. Exactly. And what do you tell people when you sell it? Why, simply say that Johnson's Wax is the finest wax polish that money can buy. I tell them it's a delight to the proud housekeeper, that it keeps floors, furniture, and woodwork bright, spotless, and gleaming, that it protects, beautifies, and preserves, that it makes a house a home and makes every shining surface reflect hospitality. That's what McGee means, Mr. Wilcox. Appearance is so important. Certainly. First impressions are lasting impressions. You go into a home that uses Johnson's Wax and you immediately get the impression of healthful cleanliness. Absolutely. Therefore, a coat made of this Irish tweed... I always say that Johnson's Wax is a coat of armor that guards against dust and dirt and dampness. Yeah, but this tweed material is... For all wood and enamel surfaces, Johnson's Wax is a must. The best housekeepers have used it for generations. How many pounds do you want? Uh, better give us half a dozen, eh, Molly? Hell, at least. Okay, yeah. I'll have Kramer's Drugstore send them over first thing tomorrow. Thanks very much. Not at all, Waxy. Glad you told us about it. Come in again. I will. So long. <laughs> Quite a salesman, that lad. <laughs> he makes Johnson's wax sound so good. Hey, I was trying to sell him something. Well, he, he out-talked you, dearie. You uh, were up against a professional there. Yeah. Well, I've got to go upstairs and sort the laundry. Lunch will be ready in about a half an hour. Okay, Tootsie. <laughs> ah, there goes a good kid. She thinks I got rooked with this Irish tweed, but who knows best about materials? Her or me? Don't answer that, McGee, because... Come in. Oh, hi, Teeny. Well, what you all dressed up for? Well, I'm going to circus, I bet you. My daddy's taking me. He is, eh? And he ought, hmm? I says he is, eh? Is what? Taking you to the circus. Oh. Your daddy. I know it. <laughs> He's taking me and Willie.
Broadway, too. Okay, okay. You like circuses? Sure I do, I bet you. I think circuses are more fun than anything. Yeah. <laughs> they got lions and tigers and elephants and hippopotamuses and Kalamazoos and... And wolf, 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 wolf. And what's this? Hmm? What were those last animals? Kalamazoos. Oh. That's kind of like a big rabbit with little bitty front feet and they carry their babies in their watch pockets. <laughs> <laughs> you mean kangaroo, sis. Kalamazoo is a town in Michigan. Why? I don't know. That's just the name of it, that's all. Is that where they get all the Kalamazoos for the circuses? Where? In Kangaroo, Michigan. <laughs> Look, sis, they don't get Kalamazoo. They don't get kangaroos in Kalamazoo. They get Kalamazoos in Australia. I mean, that's where they get kangaroos. Because they come from Australia. That's the only place they have them. Except Michigan, huh? <laughs> no, they don't have them in Michigan. That's Kalamazoo. You ever see one, mister? See what? A Kalamazoo. <laughs> Certainly. When I was in Vaudeville, they had boxing Kalamazoos. Oh. <laughs> had boxing gloves on their hind feet. Oh. <laughs> I remember one time we were... One time we were playing kangaroo Michigan, and the count... Cal- now, wait a minute. I... No. Look, you better run along, sis. You don't want to be late for the circus. No, no, I don't. I want to have plenty of time to see a lion, an elephant, and a Kalamazoo, and a Gerard. There you go again. It isn't Gerard, it's Giraffe. There you go again, mister. This is my cousin, Gerard. He's meeting us at the circus. So long. It was nice of you to drop in, Mr. Wimple. Thank you, Mrs. McGee. <laughs> Lucky, too, Wimp. For you, I mean. I'm going to do something for you. No, thank you, Mr. McGee. Hmm? People are always doing things for me, and I'm always getting into trouble. Oh. How's that, Mr. Wimple? Well, just this morning, Sweetie Face, that's my big old wife. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we know. Sweetie Face said, Wallace, she said... I'm going to do something for you. And I said, yes, dear. And she said, some of the girls are coming for luncheon. And I'm going to let you make the lemonade. (laughs) And I did, too. Well, what's so amusing about that, Mr. Wimple? Well, I'm going back after lunch and walk right up to her and say, listen, you big moose. After this, you can mix your own lemonade. Wow. What'll she say to that, Wimp? (laughs) Nothing. She'll be asleep. They'll all be asleep. Heavenly days, you mean? (laughs) Yes. Mickey's. Well, look, Wimp, I got three bolts of genuine hand-woven Irish tweed here that I bought. From a man in a doorway. Yeah. You know anything about good Irish tweed, Wimp? No, I don't, Mr. McGee. Sweetface buys all my clothes. Really? Don't you ever buy any clothes for yourself? I bought a pair of gloves once. I got so tired of wearing those mittens with a string running through my sleeve. What happened when Sweetieface found that out, Wimp? Oh, she just had a tantrum, Mr. McGee. She snatched my bird book out of my hand and hit me on the head with it. Your what, Mr. Wimple? My bird book. You see, I have been reading about the silver-crested wiki of Pennsylvania, which builds plumbing into its nest with soda straws, and then when...
May I come in? You are in, Wendy. That's somebody else. Oh. <laughs> Here, Mr. Whipple, come in. My gosh, Latrivia. Hi, Latrivia. Hello, Mr. Mayer. Hello, Molly. Hello, McGee. And Wallace. Good day, Your Honor. Haven't seen you since you sneaked out one night and met me in the Chinese restaurant, Wallace. <laughs> I hope there were no unfortunate repercussions to that event. Well, there were, but they've healed up now. Like Chinese food, Your Honor? Very fond of it, Molly. In fact, I learned how to cook rice myself. Well, you give me your recipe for rice, and I'll give you my recipe for hot chocolate, Latrivia. What's your recipe for hot chocolate, Mr. McGee? I take hot chocolate, I take chocolate, and heat it. <laughs> Before the horse. <laughs> now, you tell me your recipe for rice, Latrice. I hope it isn't quite that complicated. <laughs> yes, I hope so, too. Oh, it's very simple, Wimple. First, you boil the rice, then you put it in a colander and run cold water through it. What month, Latrice? <laughs> I beg your pardon? Oh, oh, this was last month, April. You punch holes in it, I suppose. <laughs> in what? In the colander. I suppose for a large batch of rice, you use a long month out of the calendar, huh? You went out of calendars, Mr. Mayor. I've got a lot of old ones. I don't suppose it matters what year. I am not talking about calendars. I said colanders. Well, what's the difference how you pronounce it, boy? Molly says saucepan, and I always say saucepan, but it cooks the same stuff. What, what I was trying to say was that a colander and a calendar are two different things. I know they are, Mr. Mayor. I got one from the bank with a picture of a pretty girl on it, and I got one from the butcher with a cow on it. And sweetie face, let me keep the one with the cow. <laughs> Look, when I said cowlander, uh, colander, I didn't mean I cooked the goose. Ooh, I cooked the rice in the calendar. A colander is a hole with bowls. No, <laughs> a bowl with holes in it. Oh, now, uh, come now, Mr. Mayor. Uh, don't get so excited about it. Every cook has his own way of doing things. If you want to punch holes in a calendar, I'm sure... I don't punch cows in a holiday. <laughs> I mean, when I cook rice, I run through some cold water. I, I mean, I run some cold calendars through... Uh, water through... Eat? No. No, I can't go through with this sort of thing today. I have much too much on my mind. What's cooking, Latrib, besides you? Oh, we have a small crime wave going on in town, McGee. A series of robberies. Heavenly days robberies. Any very big ones, Mr. Mayor? No, no. As a matter of fact, these burglars don't seem to have much judgment, Molly. Last night, they broke into the Wistful Vista Sack and Bag Company and took a truckload of burlap. <laughs> burlap? <laughs> yes. Yes, and they've been selling it to people around town as Irish tweed. <laughs> For two dollars a bolt. Two bucks a bolt? Hey, the dirty crook! After I described the guy, the cops went right out and picked him up, Molly. Him and his pal. Oh, wonderful. So you helped capture the burlap burglars, yep. huh? They got the whole truckload of loot back, too. And you know what I'm going to do with the reward? Reward? Yep. I'm going to give it all to you, kiddo. You've been a good kid. You've been wanting new drapes for the living room, and this reward will come in hand. Oh, McGee, you darling. How much is it? Ten bolts. <laughs> Good night, all. This is Marla Wilcox speaking for the makers of Johnson White Products for Home and Industry, inviting you to be with us again next Tuesday night. Good night. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. Well, the cast was certainly enjoying itself in that episode of Fibber McGee and Molly, not from St. Patrick's Day, but from the spring 
1947. It's the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer. Douglas Bell is our audio engineer. And this is WAMU Washington. We're your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 Ocean City, on your smart speaker, and online at WAMU.org. Digital technology is such a help to us in bringing great old-time radio to you, but alas, human error is still hanging around. A little over a month ago, I introduced a Gunsmoke episode called Moon, and proceeded to play a different episode, Gone Straight, and then we played it again the following week. Moon had been mislabeled on our digital shelf, and we're deeply sorry for the error. Thanks to you, our loyal listeners, for pointing out our mistake in very kind ways. So to rectify it, here is the episode called Moon, from August 15th, 1953, CBS and Gunsmoke. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gunsmoke, starring William Conrad, the transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America, the story of a man who moved with it, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. This evening, Vint, and I bring a friend, Jack Salter, with me. The game's open. Bring anybody you like. Salter won't be gambling. He'll just sit here and watch you deal. You got any objections? Why should I? You shouldn't. 
If you like living. See you later. Sit down, Vin. Yeah. You look worried. I am. That fella Brewer just walked out of here with a lot of my money. He's coming back tonight to play some more. And what are you worried about? Sure, I was setting him up, Nan. Let him win a little and then take everything he's got. But he's bringing a friend back with him to help watch me deal. You mean he's on to you? Yeah. Who's the friend? Jack Salter. You know him? A little. And I've heard he's quite a gunman. Oh. Man, you got to help me. Help you how? Brewer's got $500 of my money now. And if he hits a streak of luck, it could be more. With both of them watching me, I, I don't dare deal cards my way. Well, what can I do, Vince? You're a gambler. I'm not. There are ways of getting that money back without gambling. How? You just get him off alone somewhere and I'll take care of the rest. Oh, no, Vin, please. Man, this is our money, yours and mine. It's part of the money we're running away on. If I lose this, we'll be a long time getting to St. Louis. No, but... You want to go on working in a saloon the rest of your life? Supporting your child and that worthless husband of yours? Or do you want to go with me? Back east. And be free. And have a decent home. You know I do, Vin. All right. And if Brewer's lucky and goes on winning, you got to play sweet to him. Get him outside, in the alley, alone. You can do it, Nan, easy. It's for us, you know. I'm afraid. I'll do it, Vince. You know I will. That's a girl. I'm good, Vin. Eighteen. <laughs> I got twenty. This wind all the time gets tiresome. Think I'll quit. Whenever you like. You got about seven hundred of his money now, bro. Oh, that much, sort of. Well, we'll have another little game sometime, Vin. What do you say? Any time, Brewer. Mm. Give me your chips. I'll cash them. Sure. Now spread the word you're an honest dealer, Vince. Real honest. He sure is. <laughs> I'm going now, Brewer. There's a little girl at the Longhorn been waiting to dance with me. See you later, Salter. Sure. So long, Vince. It's uh, been a pleasure. Goodbye. Here's your money. Thanks. Where? Buy your drink, Brewer? Oh, that's decent of you, Vint, but <laughs> I'm the winner. I'll buy you one. All right. Mike, bring us a bottle of Irish. Great. Don't worry about tonight, Vint. I'll give you a chance to win it back. Maybe tomorrow. You know, a gambler like me's bound to lose now and then, Brewer. <laughs> Especially when he runs into my kind of luck, huh? 
Oh, I hope you gentlemen don't mind if I brought you a bottle of Jameson's. Mike's busy. Well, now, of course we don't. Sit down, man. Have one with us. Oh, thanks. I was sort of hoping you might ask me. (laughs) (laughs) You're honest anyway. I like that. Uh, how'd you make out at 21? Ask him. He won $730. Oh. Here. Let's drink up. Mud in your eye. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for the drink, Brewer. I think I'll quit for the night. Let me know when you want another game, Ben. (laughs) Good night. Um, man? Yeah? Aren't you and Vince, uh... Oh, we both <laughs> work here. Anything else is just the usual gossip. Oh. You're pretty. <laughs> have another drink, man? No, no, thanks. I'm sorry, but I have to go home. Oh, you can't do that. You just got here. Besides, it's early yet. I always go home early. You can walk with me, though, if you like. Walk with you? Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. Fine. Let's go. All right. I'll take the bottle back. Here's some money. Give it a mic. Wait for me at the back door, huh? Back door? Oh, it's quicker to where I live that way. Oh, okay. Well, hurry up, man. Yeah. Of course I do. I walk it every night. <laughs> oh, oh, what? Oh, oh, my ankle. Oh, here, here. I've got you. I've got you. I twisted it. Oh. Hold me, will you? No, wait, I'll carry you. Easy enough. Uh, now, just take it easy. I'll get you home now. Tell me where you are. Right down this alley, Mr. Dillon, so the said. Yeah, I see some people back there. This is it. <laughs> Pull that light over here, will you, mister? Yeah, I'll you Thank you. Why, Charlie Brewer. Yeah. He's dead. Somebody clubbed him, all right. Who are you, miss? Uh, I'm Nat Miller. I work at the Oliphaganza. What were you doing out back here? Well, he wanted to take a walk, and we got out of here, and then somebody jumped us. Are you hurt? Well, they knocked me out, but I'm all right now. They? 
How many were there? I don't, I don't know. I got hit. When I came to, I saw him like that. I screamed. That's all I know, Marshal. I didn't see anybody at all. Chester. Yes, sir. Take her over to Doc's. No, no, I... I'm all, I'm all right. I, I want to go home. I'm, I'm all right. Are you sure? Yeah, sure. Sure. Don't bother about me, Marshal. I'm fine. I'm fine. Okay, Nan. Chester, go find a piece of canvas. We'll take Brewer over to Doc's. Yes, sir. Is Matt back yet, Chester? He's coming across Front Street right now, Doc. Well, it's not often a man gets killed around here without being shot. Clubs don't make any noise, Doc. It's murder. Just plain murder, that's what it is. Mm. You all through, Doc? I'm all through, Matt. We'll bury him in the morning. Doc, did uh, Brewer have any money on him? Uh, a couple of dollars and change, Matt. I wrapped it up with the rest of his effects. Yeah. He won a lot of money from Vint James tonight. Then he was robbed. That girl, that girl, Nan Miller. Well, she helped rob him, maybe. You think a woman could have clubbed him that hard, Doc? Oh, no, I don't. My goodness, no. Well, I don't think so, either. But I think she got him out in the alley so Vent could club him. As soon as Vent got away, she set up a holler. But, Matt, just because Vent lost some money... They say Vent and Nan are friends, Doc. Good friends. You don't say... What do you know? You going to arrest him, Mr. Dillon? There's no real evidence, Chester. You just go free again. Mm. Marshal? Yeah. I want to talk to you. Now, you're Jack Salter, aren't you? I am. And I'm a friend, or was, to Charlie Brewer. I see you don't see nothing, Marshal. Oh, what do you mean? A gambler, Vent. He murdered Brewer. Can you prove it? I don't have to prove it. Well, the law says you do, Sullivan. I ain't interested in what the law says, Marshal. I am. Look, Marshal, Charlie Brewer won over $700 off Vent tonight. That much? I was there. Watching Vince, so's he deal honest. Oh? I don't even have to ask you if you found that money on Brewer. No. It was gone. And why haven't you arrested Vince? Wouldn't do any good, Salter. There's no legal proof he did it. I told you, I ain't interested in all that. So? So I'll kill Vince myself if I have to. That's what I thought. I'm warning you, Marshal. I'll give you till tomorrow night. And if he isn't in jail by then, I'm going out and I'm going to shoot him down. That's murder, too, Sullivan. If you try it, I'll throw you in jail. We'll see about that, Marshal. After I kill Vin. Don't do it, Sullivan. Tomorrow night, Marshal. And you know I'll do it. This table all right, Kitty? Fine, Matt. It's as quiet as any. Uh, you sure you don't want to drink? Not tonight, Kitty. 
What's on your mind, Matt? Nan Miller. Oh. I heard about her being with Brewer when he got killed. She wasn't hurt, though, they said. No, she's fine. Because they didn't hit her very hard, then. Knocked her out. So she said, anyway. I take it you don't believe her. No, Kitty, I don't. Tell me about her and Vint James, huh? Well, Vint gambles at the Alphaganza map, and she works over there, too. I hardly know him at all. You know more than that about him. Oh, there's a lot of gossip, if you're interested in that. Tell me what you think's true. They're in love. What else? For some men, that's enough, Matt. Kitty, I'm not interested in romance. I'm after a murderer. Sure. That's about all I know, Matt. They're in love, and I'm sure Nan wasn't stepping out on Vint with Charlie Brewer. I'd swear to that. No. No, I don't think she was either. From what I hear, she and Vint are serious enough to get married, if they could. Well, why couldn't they? Well, Matt, don't you know? Nan's already married. What? Sure. She's been married for years. Well, where's her husband? Does he know about all this? I don't think he'd care if he did. They say he spends all his time in that little saloon at the edge of town. What's it called? The El Dorado? He spends his time and her money, is that it? Men. Now, Kitty. He wouldn't be so bad if it weren't for the kid. They have a child? A six-year-old girl. Vicky, I think she's called. Nan hired some old woman to take care of her most of the time. A little girl, huh? And you think Nan and Vint would get married if they could? I don't know, Matt, but they act like it. So I hear, anyway. Yeah. I think I got an idea, Kitty. What? Well, I'll tell you later if it works. But it has to do with men. Tell me, do you think Vint's a good man? I don't think any man's any good. Not till you put him to the test, anyway. Well, that's exactly what I'm going to gamble on. And I don't think Vint will test out very well. I don't know what you're talking about, but why not? He's a crooked dealer, for one thing. I'll see you later, Kitty. I'm going to have a talk with Vint. Marshal Dillon. What do you want? Open up the door. It's late, Marshal. Is it? I was about to go to bed. This won't take long. Well, okay, Marshal. What do you want? I want you to leave town, Vint. What? Get out of Dodge by tomorrow evening. But, what for? Why? I always run crooked gamblers out. But, Marshal, I don't deal crooked, and nobody can prove I do. Yeah. 
You come from St. Louis, don't you, Vint? Yeah. Why? There's a train east at 5 o'clock tomorrow. Be on it. You understand? All right, Marshal. I'll go. I know you will. Good night. Good night, Marshal. said I'd be here at four, ma'am. I rented the wagon there to carry your trunk to the depot. Well, come on in. I'm not quite ready yet. Well, the Santa Fe leaves at five. You haven't got much time. Vent, I'm so excited. It's like I told you this morning, Nan. We're mighty lucky getting out this easy. Yeah, yeah, of course we are. But let's don't talk about all that now. Let's just think about the future. Wait till you see St. Louis. It's a real town with, with real buildings. Not a lot of ramshackle old rookeries like Dodge. Oh, I can hardly wait, Vint. And to see it all with you. I just can't believe it's really going to happen. Well, it won't happen if you don't hurry up and finish packing. Oh, I'm almost ready. Come along, you take Vicky's things out now. I pack them first. Vicky's things? Yeah, she's playing out back. <laughs> I'd have never done a thing with that child in here. Just hope she isn't getting dirty. She's all dressed up for the train. Vicky? Of course. Why are you looking like that? You're planning to take Vicky? Then what do you mean? You never mentioned taking Vicky along. Well, you didn't think I'd leave her here. We never talked about it. Talked about it? She's my child, then. Of course I'll take no. her. No. No, I don't want a child alone. Then. Nan, look. We can't be bothered with a kid. We're going to see things, do things, you and me. Well, Vicky's better off here anyway. Better off here? With a drunkard for a father and no mother at all? Are you crazy? Well, give her to somebody. Give her to... She's my child, Ben. Don't you understand? Sure, but I don't want her with us, Nan. I can't stand kids. Oh, no, Go you on, can't... get packed. We're going to be late. Vent. I won't leave Vicky. What? I won't leave her. You mean that? Yes. All right, then. Stay with her. I'm going. Oh, no, Vince. You can't. You can't leave me now, oh, Vince. Yes, no. I can. I can do anything. Vince, no. No, please. Goodbye, Nan. You're really going, aren't you? Of course I am. I hate you. I hate you. Once again, please, uh, we'll just come out of the music into the, the ad-libs on the train. Real easy, not heavy, but they're there. Okay, once again. Here he comes now, Mr. Dillon, just in time. 
Yeah. He's alone, too. What do you mean, he's alone? Chester. What? Uh, you go tell the engineer not to pull that train out of Dodge until I give him the word, huh? What? Uh, go on, hurry up, tell him. Yes, sir, I... Well, Marshal, I'm leaving. Are you satisfied? Not quite, Flint. Oh? And here comes a man who isn't satisfied at all about your leaving. Who? Where? Right over there. See? Jack Salter. You remember him. Salter? Well, what's he doing here? Well, he'll probably tell us. I seen him driving around that wagon with his bags all dressed up. You can let him go, aren't you, Marshal? Can let him ride that train right out of Dodge. What are you talking about, Sol? Shut up. I'll take care of you later, Vince. Later? Yeah. I just got a sudden idea to go to St. Louis, too, Marshal. I see. What's this all about? Salter here wants to kill you, Vince. Kill me? Yeah. He says you murdered a friend of his. Brewer. Well, that's a lie. Don't you call me a liar. All right, hold it, Salter. I'll handle this, not you. Mr. Dillon? Oh, Mr. Dillon? Yeah. What is it, Chester? Uh, this lady here wants to talk to you. Man, it's man. Excuse me, gentlemen. I- I'm coming with you, Marshal. Well, so am I by heaven. You, uh, wanted to see me, Nan? Yes, Marshal, I do. I got something to tell you about Vince and me. Wait, Nan, don't. Why not, Vince? Look, there's time. I'll go over to the house and get Vicky right now. We'll take her. Of course we will. I was just joking. Were you, Vince? Well, you know I was, Nan. Come on, you come with me. We'll go get her. No. I don't trust you, Vince. You're no good. No good at all. Nan, listen. Shut up, Ben. Let her talk. All right, go ahead, Ben. Vince killed Brewer last night, Marshal. Look out, he's got a gun! You got in the way, Marshal. I'd have shot him. He almost shot man. You jumped him just in time, Mr. Dillon. Yeah. All right, Chester, pick up his gun. And bring him to jail when he comes to. Yes, sir. Well, Salter, you satisfied? I'm satisfied, Marshal. Vince, no good, Marshal. He's no good at all. I was counting on you to find that out, man. All right, come along. Gunsmoke, 
Under the direction of Norman MacDonald stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Tonight's story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Harley Bear is Chester, Georgia Ellis is Kitty, and Howard McNear is Doc. Gunsmoke has been selected by the Armed Forces Radio Service to be heard by our troops overseas. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke. The Gunsmoke episode correctly called Moon from the summer of 1953 and from the big broadcast on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer, and Douglas Bell is our audio engineer. You can reach us by email at bigbroadcast at wamu.org or on Twitter at WAMU 88.5. And do visit our Facebook page. It's The Big Broadcast. Sometimes crooks are defiant, sometimes they're penitent, And sometimes, they're downright self-righteous. See what you think when the malefactors finally revealed in a case called The Big Bid. It comes from January 26, 1954, NBC, and the series Dragnet. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a burglary detail. You get a call that a clothing store in Hollywood is suffering losses. The value of the stolen property is over $12,000. There's no lead to the identity of the thief. No pattern to his M.O. Your job, get him. The documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Wednesday, June 3rd. It was hot in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of burglary detail. My partner's Frank Smith. The boss is Captain Bernard. My name's Friday. We were on our way out from the office, and it was 9.56 a.m. when we got to 1592 Vine Street. Dodd's men's store. Excuse me? Yeah? Wonder if you can tell us where you can find Leonard Dodd's. Yeah, uh, that's him. Fellow back there in the blue suit. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I don't know how it happened, honey. No, I just came in this morning and I noticed the stuff was gone. Hmm? Well, a whole shipment of suede coats. Haven't even been unpacked yet. Yeah, about two dozen of them. Well, white with a button-down collar. Yeah, I called the cops in the insurance company. Yeah, well, about 12000 Well, a couple of customers just came in, honey. I'll call you back. Yeah. Well, don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. Goodbye. Yes, sir? Can I help you, gentlemen? Mr. Dodds? That's right. Police officers. This is Frank Smith. My name's Friday. How do you do, do, sir? You reported a burglary this morning? Yeah, you guys from Hollywood? No, sir, we're out of Central. I didn't think I'd seen you around here before. You want to tell us what happened? Yeah, come on back to the store. When did you first discover the theft? Well, this morning when I came in, I went back here to unpack some new merchandise, and I found most of it gone. Here, I'll get the door. Now, this is our storeroom. 
When we get a shipment from the east, the cases are kept here until we get a chance to unpack them and check the invoices. I see. Was all of the stolen merchandise taken from this room? I'm not sure about that. I do know that a shipment of suede jackets and waistcoats was in here. It's gone now. A couple of cases of shirts, too. The only way I'd have of knowing if they took anything from out in the store itself would be to make a complete inventory. Mm -hmm. What do you estimate the loss at? $12,000. When was the last time you saw the merchandise in here? Yesterday afternoon. About what time? Well, I'd have to guess at that. I'd say about 3 or 3.30. How many doors are there to the store here? Just the front one. One in the back. Opens into an alley. What if we could see the rear door? Mm, sure. Back this way. One of the first things I thought of, too, but it was locked. You opened the door this morning, did you? Yes, I found the stuff gone, then I checked the door. It was still locked. Uh-huh. You have an alarm system in the store? Yes, didn't go off last night, though. I see. Here's the door. You can see for yourself there's nothing wrong with the lock. How about it, Joe? No, there's no signs of it, Jimmy. Well, that's what I thought, too. I looked pretty close. Couldn't see any sign of where they got in. How about windows? Hmm? Possible they got in through a window? No, I'm sure of that. Only two we've got are in the tailor shop. Here. You can see them up there, good ten feet and barred. They couldn't have gotten in there. All right, we'll have our crime lab take a look. Who has keys to the place? Well, I've got one. Yes, sir, but who else? Well, they're just me and Al. Al? Yeah, Al Baker. He's sort of the assistant manager. Whenever I'm not around, he takes charge of things. Can we see him? Well, you can when he comes in. Listen, I don't want you to give him any trouble. I'd trust him with anything, anything at all. I don't want you asking him a lot of embarrassing questions. All right, sir. How long has he worked for you? Oh, I guess it's been about five years. I don't think I could run the place without him. Sure wouldn't want to try. I see. Besides this baker, how many people do you have working for you in the store? Three others full-time during rush periods. I call in extra help. Can you give us a list of their names? Yes. But you can be sure of one thing. What's that? Isn't anybody who works at the store did this. You seem pretty sure about that. Well, I know my people. All of them have been with me for a couple of years. I trust them all. I noticed that you're doing some remodeling here. How about the workmen? Possible one of them took the merchandise? Mr. Friday... Do you know how much $12,000 in clothes is? Yes, sir, I have an idea. The both of you couldn't carry it in one trip. Not in a couple of trips. Whoever took those clothes was here a long time, and he worked hard getting them out of the store. Yes, sir, but about the workmen? It couldn't have been one of them. None of them have keys to the place. We have to open up to let them in, and they leave before we close. They tried to get the things out of the store. One of us would have seen it. Couldn't possibly have been one of them. Frank? Yeah? You want to call the crime lab? Sure. Can I use your phone? Yes. It's on the counter in front of the store. I just don't understand it. Sir? Just doesn't seem to be any way they could have gotten all of the clothes out. No way at all. Well, they must have found one. 10.38. The crew from the crime lab arrived and went over the place. The whole store was checked, and all entrances and exits of the store were checked for fingerprints. Both the front door and the rear exit were examined, but there was no mark of a jimmy. The windows on the second floor were gone over, but the locks on them were secure, and there was no apparent way they could have been used to remove the stolen merchandise. We talked to the other clerks in the store. From them, we got approximately the same story that we'd obtained from the store manager. They verified that the merchandise had been on the premises at 3.30 p.m. the day before. None of them could say for certain that it was there after that, however. While Frank was checking with the members of the crew from the crime lab, I called the names of the employees into the record bureau for a check. Yeah, that's Baker, B-A-K-E-R. WMA, 46 years, 5 feet 10 inches tall, 156 pounds. Right. What? No. No, no visible marks of scars. Right. Joe, I got something for you. Okay, if you'll check the names, I'll give you a call later. Right. What do you got? Come on upstairs. I got talking to Lee, and I figured from what they found, the merchandise had to be taken out in the daytime. Lee goes along with that? Yeah. The way the doors look, if they were open, somebody used a key. Mm-hmm. 
He thinks like we do that somebody took the cases out, planted them, then picked the stuff up last night. Well, what do you got up here? Window that opens out on the roof of the next building. Check the lock. Hasn't been tampered with. Yeah. Come on. Climb up. No bars on this one, huh? Uh-uh. Over here. Right there behind the air shaft. Now, what is it? Take a look. Uh-huh. Shirts. And this one, suede coats. Is this all that was taken? No. Manager says it's about half. No sign of the rest of it, huh? No. Must have taken that last night. Figures the thief will be back tonight for the rest. Well, it'll be here. Mm-hmm. So will we. We asked the manager of the clothing store to keep watch on the cases of stolen merchandise while we made arrangements to place a stake out on them. 12.14 p.m. The crime lab finished their investigation and Frank and I talked with Lee Jones. He told us that he checked the fingerprints found on the doors and windows, but that all of them had been eliminated as they belonged to the members of the store staff or to the workmen. He told us that they'd found an impression of a tire print in the dirt of the alley next to the building where the stolen clothing had been found. He went on to say that they'd checked and had found that the truck belonging to the plaster contractor had tires of the same type that had left the impression. A canvas was made of the tenants in the building next to the clothing store, but they could give us no new information on the possible identity of the thief. 3.52 p.m. We checked back with the record bureau on the list of names of store employees. Yeah. When was that? Uh-huh. How long? Did you get out clean? Mm-hmm. Nothing on the rest of them, huh? Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Anything? Yeah. They checked the names, came up with one possible. Yeah. The assistant manager, Al Baker. Yeah. He's done time for burglary. The record bureau had come up with the information that Alfred Roger Baker had been arrested in 1943 for burglary. He'd been tried and convicted on three counts. He'd spent a term in the state penitentiary at San Quentin, and he'd been released. Since that time, he apparently had led the life of an exemplary citizen. 4.07 p.m., Frank and I took him to the office of the clothing store to talk to him. Sit down, Baker. Sure. What's this all about? You don't think I had anything to do with this burglary, do you? How many times have you been arrested? Why do you ask that? We just want an answer. You seen the record? We've seen it. You know without me telling you. We'd like to hear it from you. I was arrested once. I did the time. I'm clean since then. I thought when you did the time and they let you out, you didn't know anybody anything. Yes, that's right. Well, then what are you guys hopping on me for? I just work here. I mean, just because I did a hitch for burglary that I had anything to do with this. We didn't say you did. Well, you're sure acting like I did, bringing me in here talking about how I was arrested. Sure acting like you think I had something to do with this one. Well, you look good for it. Well, how do you figure that? You got the only other key to the door. Look, I don't like to bring this up. Maybe you bright cops haven't thought about it, but who says Dodds couldn't have done it himself? What do you mean? Well, he's in trouble, big trouble. This would be an easy way out of it. All right, you tell us. Well, all the stuff is insured. Be pretty sweet for him to lift the merchandise, collect on the insurance, and then sell the stuff, too. It'd come out real good. That's the way you got it figured, huh? I'm not trying to figure it anyway. All I know is that you guys are trying to wrap something around me that doesn't fit, and I want no part of it. Come right down. It must be a couple of guys work here could have done it. Well, the way we got it, the thief used a key. Well, that brings us right back to Dodds. Well, if he's in trouble financially, then why is he doing all this remodeling? He hasn't got much choice. He's got to brighten his place up, or he's going to lose what business he's got. You check into him. You look it up. You'll see what I'm talking about. It makes a lot more sense than you hauling me in here. Can you account for your time last night? From when? From the time you left here. Yeah, I can give you every minute. All right, go ahead. I left here at 6.30. That's the time I always leave. Who was here when you left? You mean who locked up? That's right. Leonard, he always locks up, always. Where'd you go after you left? Went up to the corner and had a beer. That's like always, too. Anybody in the bar know you? Yeah, the bartender and the waitress. They'll vouch for you? Sure they will. All right, go ahead. After I left there, I drove home. What time did you leave the bar? 
About 7.10, I had one beer, smoked two cigarettes, put a nickel in the nut machine on the bar and went home. I left at 7.10. Sure wish I knew you were going to want to know all this. I'd have been more careful about remembering. I forgot how many nuts I got from the machine. I'll take a wild guess and say 14. I got no way of proving that. You'll have to take my word for it. What time did you get home? By 7.50. Where do you live? Out in the valley. Traffic's heavy going out at the pass that time, and I took me ten minutes longer than it usually does. You prove when you got home? Yeah, I can. How? Talk to my wife. We got a time clock on the wall just as you come in the door. I punch in and out. The time will be there. What about last night? I was home all night. I had dinner, sat around to watch television, went to bed. You didn't leave your house, huh? No, enough from the time I got home last night until I left this morning. Pretty bad, isn't it? How do you mean that? I can prove every minute of it. Look, you get off my back, cop. You start looking around, you'll come up with a lot of guys who had a lot more chance and a lot more reason to heist that stuff than I do. That won't be hard because I haven't got any. You sit tight and I'll show you who sold that stuff. Huh? Wait a minute. Where are you going? Just over to the desk. I want to show you something. What? You'll see. Hold it just a minute. Now, you show me what you want and I'll get it for you. Hey, you cops, you never learn, do you? Open the top drawer. This one? Yeah. All right. Now open that one. All right, what do you want? Uh, a folder right there. This one? Yeah, that's the one. Put it up on the desk. All right. Come on, open it. Yeah? Now take a good look at the reason the stuff was stolen. What is it, Joe? Bills. Isn't anything in the store that's paid for it. Take a look at them yourself. Here. Look here, pass due. Please remit. Your credit is important. Overdue. Pass due. Go through the rest of them. They're all like that. There's no place in the country anymore that'll extend any credit to Dodds. Not one. You're looking for somebody who had a reason to steal the stuff? Well, there's your answer. You talk to Leonard Dodds. He's got the reason. Come in. Joe. Frank, see you a minute. I'll take it. Okay. Telling you, you got to lean on somebody. You lean on Leonard Dodds. He's the one. Don't come around here bothering me. Joe. Yeah. You know what he got? He might be telling the truth. Huh? Stuff on the roof. Yeah. It's gone. listening to Dragnet, the authentic story of your police force in action. With the removal of the remaining packages on the roof, our main opportunity of catching a thief was gone. We questioned the people in the store about it. From them, we learned that the manager, Leonard Dodds, had brought the cases of clothing into the store himself. We talked to him, and he offered as an explanation the fact that the insurance company wouldn't like him leaving a supply of expensive suede coats up on the roof. He went on to say that catching the thief was our business, but we were not to interfere with his running of the store in any attempt to apprehend them. We tried to question him regarding the accusations made by the salesman, Al Baker. He said they were ridiculous and that we should know better than to listen to the accusations made by an ex-convict. He went on to say that he resented the questions we put to him, and that if we intended to continue, he would have to get in touch with his lawyer. We contacted the office and made arrangements for a stakeout to be set up on the roof of the building next door. And then Frank and I returned to the office to check further on Leonard Dodds. We checked with his bank and we found that he had several notes on the clothing store. The head of the loan department told us that Dodds' payments had been irregular. And that at the time, he was overdue on one of the notes. We contacted the insurance company and found that Dodds had made a claim on the stolen merchandise that morning. And had requested payment as soon as possible. We turned a list of the stolen articles over to pawn shop detail and asked them to see that the information would get into the hands of the second-hand dealers in the city. 10.15 p.m. Frank and I filled out the log and prepared to leave the office. You about ready? Yeah, I'll be right with you. I got it. 
Burglary Friday. Yes, ma'am. Hmm? Well, I'm not sure. No, the officer that handled the case isn't here right now. I wonder if I could take a message. Yes, ma'am. He'll call you when he gets in. All right, uh-huh. Yes, all right. If you'll wait just a minute, I'll transfer you to the main jail. No, the main jail. They'll probably be able to tell you. Yes, that's right. Just a minute. Hold on, please. Would you give this call to 2949, please? That's right, the bail clerk. Thank you. The woman wants to know how much it's going to cost to get her husband out of jail. Yeah. I got it. Burglary Friday. Yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right, we did. Yeah. Well, when was that? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, okay, we'll wait here. Right, bye. Well, looks like we got it made, maybe. What do you mean? Radio car out in the Westlake District just picked up a couple of kids. Uh-huh. Both of them were loaded down with clothes. Yeah. Label on them is Dodd's clothing. The radio car officer had told me on the phone that he and his partner, while making a routine patrol of the area, had spotted two boys walking down the streets carrying large quantities of clothing. When they were stopped, the two suspects were unable to account for the clothes, and they were not able to tell the arresting officers where they'd gotten them. In checking the pair out, the officers had called burglary detail, and we'd gotten our first concrete lead to the thief. 10.47 p.m., the two suspects arrived at the office. Their names were checked through R&I, and they were both found to have misdemeanor records listing petty theft and attempted burglary. One of them, Walter Kramer, had been convicted on burglary charges and had been sentenced to Preston School for Boys. He was, at the time, on parole. While the other boy waited in the squad room, Frank and I questioned Kramer in the interrogation room. How old are you? Eighteen. Where do you live? You know that already. What are you asking me again for? I told the other cop, gave him all the information. Where do you live? 2574 Brandon Street. You want to tell us where you got the clothing you had when you were picked up? You're smart cops. You figure it out. You on parole now? No, I got out clean. Are you still that way? That depends on how you read this one. Where'd you get those things? I found them. You expect us to buy that? I don't care if you buy it or not. It's the truth. You're pretty heavy, aren't you? I've been around. That time up at Preston didn't do you much good, did it? You'd be surprised what I learned up there. Not what you were sent there for. That depends on where you're sitting. You were picked up carrying a load of stolen clothes. You want to tell us where you got them? You tell me. Now, come on, kid. Where'd you get the clothes? You going to play it that way, are you? There ain't any other. Where were you yesterday? Starting when? From when you got up. I got to tell you all that? We want to hear it. Pretty dull. All right, go ahead. Well, I got up about noon. You got a job? Yeah. Where? Around. What do you do? Nothing. I'm a philosopher. I study people. I just sit around all day and study people. How do you live? Stay with my folks. They pick up the tab. Go ahead. With what? What you did yesterday. Told you. I got up about noon. Had some breakfast, then went over to Harry's. That's the boy you were picked up with? Yeah, I went over to his house. Sat around and watched the television. How long were you at his house? Maybe six. Sat around and talked philosophy. Talked and watched the old movies. What'd you do then? Left and went out to study people. Where'd you go? Went down, played a couple of games of pool, had something to eat. And after that? Went out to a movie. You got any way of proving that? Sure, talk to Harry. Is he your alibi? Yeah, you talk to him, he'll tell you. Now, you may not know this, but he's in the theft as deep as you are. I got some information for you, cop. Neither one of us is in on it at all. All right, get your coat. Where you taking me? City jail. You gonna book me? You called it. How about Harry? Well, how about him? He going too? Yep. What charge? Suspicion 459 PC. Burglary? That's right. Come on. You mean that stuff is really stolen? That's right. You're telling me right? Yep. It ain't true. Well, you tell us about it. No, I mean, Harry and me didn't steal the stuff, at least not the first time. What do you mean by that? Well, we stole it, yeah, you got us cold for that, but not the first time. Well, where'd you get it? From a garage, that's the truth. We stole the stuff from a garage. Where is the place? I'll show you. There's a lot more stuff there, a lot more. Clothing? Yeah. 
Whose garage is it? I don't know. Harry and me were walking around out there, and we saw this truck pull up. Guy got out and unloaded some packing cases. When was all this? Last night. The way the garage looked, though, it wasn't the first time. The place was loaded. A lot of shirts, coats, suits, all kinds of things. Harry and me figured that we might as well help ourselves. But we didn't steal the stuff originally, not the first time. What's the address where the garage is? I don't know. Up on Shortale Avenue, near the lake. Right, we take you up there. Will you point it out for us? Sure, I'll show you. I want to see him get his, get it real good. What do you mean? Imagine having a garage full of stolen things. Terrible, that's what it is. Is that right? Sure. The important thing is that you know that we didn't steal it the first time. You've got to believe that. We didn't steal it the first time. Is there really a difference? a.m. We talked to the suspect that had been picked up with Kramer. He gave us substantially the same story that we'd gotten from the first boy. They both agreed to take us out to the garage where they'd found the stolen merchandise. Before we left the office, we put in a call to the clothing store, but there'd been no report from the stakeout on the roof. The two suspects directed us to drive out towards Silver Lake. We took the freeway out to Glendale Boulevard and turned right. We drove out to Loma Vista, and then we turned right again. The boys directed us up the hill and then onto a side street. We went about a half a block farther before they pointed out the house to us. We drove down the street and parked the car. Frank and I and the two suspects walked back to the house and into the rear of the yard. A two-car garage in the rear of the building was unlocked. We went in. Scattered around the place, we found several large packing cases of clothing. The labels on them were from some of the most exclusive men's stores in the city. There was no question about it. This was the plant for the stolen merchandise. Frank stood by the back door of the house, and I went up on the front porch and rang the bell. Yeah. You're Martin Hetman, aren't you? Yeah, do I know you? My name's Friday, police department. Oh, yeah, I met you over at Dodge. What is it, some more questions? Yeah, a few. Kind of late to come around in. Well, maybe a little. We're just going to turn in. Can you wait till the morning? I could come down to the police department. No, I'm afraid we're going to have to talk tonight. Oh. Okay, come on in. Thank you. Anybody else in the house? Just my wife and the kids. Where are they? Upstairs. They're all asleep. I told you I was just going to turn in. Uh-huh. That garage out back, does that belong to you? What? The garage out in the back of the lot, is it yours? Yeah, it's mine. Why? What do you use it for? <laughs> what do you use a garage for? I keep the truck there. Well, where's the truck tonight? I left it at a service station down Glendale Boulevard. Having a grease new oil change. Why? Anybody else use the garage besides you? No. Everything in it belong to you? You mind if I call my lawyer? Well, you can do that from downtown. You arresting me? Yes, sir. You found the stuff, huh? We found it. That a cigarette? Yeah, here. Here's a match. I guess I should have gotten it out of the garage sooner. Mm. Figured on it first thing in the morning. When you talked to me this morning at Dodds, I should have known. Should have known right then. I didn't think you'd figure it this way. All right, go on and get your coat. Yeah, just let me finish the cigarette. You sure had it figured. Going real good. Want to hear about it? All right. Well, I'm a plastering contractor. You know that. Yeah, you told us that this morning. Well, I bid on the jobs. All the contractors submit bids on how much we'll do the work for. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I always got in with a low bid. <laughs> used to drive the other contractors crazy. Never could figure out how I could come out on it. You see it, though, don't you? Well, you tell me. Well, you see, if a job would cost me, say, uh, $3,500 to do, I'd put in a bid for $2,500. I always get the job, and then I'd steal the other 1000 of merchandise, see? Mm-hmm. That way, I could come out and nobody get hurt. What about the store owner? I weren't sure. Only buddy in the middle was the insurance company, so you see, nobody really got hurt. You about finished with that cigarette now? Yeah, just about. You're pretty lucky, you know. Is that right? Yeah, sure. This was going to be the last time. 
I figured that after this, I'd be able to go it straight. Got my equipment all paid for, money in the bank. Figured I could go it straight. This was going to be the last time. Well, you were right, weren't you? Hey, you mind telling me something? What's that? How'd you tag me? How'd you find out? We caught a couple of kids breaking into the garage. They'd stolen some of the clothes. They were picked up, and they pointed the place out to us. Kids? That's right. How about that? That's really terrible, isn't it? What is? Oh, this younger generation. I had legitimate reason. I was just trying to come out. Wasn't anybody going to get hurt my way. But those kids. I hope you're going to put them away for a long time, little thieves. Come on, get your coat. Let's go. That's just awful. No sense of honesty at all. I sure hate to think of what the world's coming to. You want to tell me something, Hetman? Well, sure. What do you want to know? Well, you said you just stole the difference between what you agreed to do the job for and what it really ought to be. I got it right? Yeah, just the difference. Well, you hit the Dodge store pretty hard, didn't you? $12,000 worth? Well, you see, that was a kind of a deal. Well. I didn't get anything on the last job, not a thing, so I had to make up for it, you see what I mean? Yeah. I had to come out some way. Nobody would expect me to take a complete loss, would they? I wouldn't know about that. I just wanted what I had coming. Yeah, well, you're going to get it this time. The story you've just heard is true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On October 17th, trial was held in Department 89, Superior Court of the State of California, in and for the County of Los Angeles. In a moment, the results of that trial. Martin April Hetman was tried and convicted of burglary in the second degree, four counts, and received sentence as prescribed by law. Burglary in the second degree is punishable by imprisonment in the state penitentiary for a period of not less than one or more than 15 years, or by imprisonment in the county jail for not more than one year. Walter James Kramer and Samuel Arthur Nicholson were tried and convicted of burglary in the first degree. Burglary in the first degree is punishable by imprisonment in the state penitentiary for a period of not less than five years. This is the year that the March of Dimes has started its polio prevention program. And your dimes and dollars are going to determine just how far this program is carried out. Join the March of Dimes and give extra. Give extra for victory over polio. You'll be glad you did. just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Technical advisors, Captain Jack Donahoe, Sergeant Marty Wynn, Sergeant Vance Brasher. Heard tonight were Ben Alexander, Harry Bartell, Vic Perrin, Herb Ellis. Script by John Robinson. Music by Walter Schumann. Hal Gibney speaking. Watch an entirely different Dragnet case history each week on your local NBC television station. Please check your newspapers for the day and time. Listen now to Barry Craig, next on the NBC Radio Network. The Big Bid, an episode of Dragnet from the winter of 1954 and from the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz, and this is WAMU Washington. We're your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 Ocean City, on your smart speaker, and online at WAMU.org. 
We're going to hear two very different takes on St. Patrick's Day now. One from the Old West, the other from Old Showbiz. It's an excerpt of the Dennis Day Show from the mid-1950s. It features the singer Patty Andrews, without her sisters, and the man of a thousand voices, Mel Blanc. In addition to the vocal virtuosity of all three of those performers, you have to admire the enthusiasm and energy in the comedy, as silly as most of it is. The premise of the sketch is an Irish radio network that does its own versions of popular American shows like Dragnet, Young Dr. Malone, and You Bet Your Life. There are references to the pianist Liberace, the manager of the New York baseball giants Leo DeRocher, the vaudeville comic Pinky Lee, and the quintessential Irish actor Barry Fitzgerald. From NBC and AFRTS, right around St. Patrick's Day in 1955, it's an excerpt of the Dennis Day Show. Patricia, me darling, when you sang that song, your voice was as clear as the lakes of Killarney, as beautiful as sunrise in Dublin, and as shimmering as the moonlight on Galway Bay. So tell me, how are things in Glockamora? Well, if you really want to know, Patty, I've got a shortwave radio right here. Let's tune in on Balakaderi and County Mayo and find out right now. Good. <laughs> The top of the morning to y'all. This is Mac NBC, the McNamara Broadcasting Company, bringing you such outstanding programs as One Man Shillelagh, Life Can Be Jabers, Just Plain Pat O'Brien, The Green Button Show, The Green Skeleton Show, Green for a Day, and the most popular soap opera in Ireland. How white was my valley? <laughs> How white was my valley? What are you saying, you spalpeen? This is Ireland. Oh, oh, I thought you said Iceland. <laughs> we start our broadcasting day with that great crime program, O Dragnet. O Dragnet is brought to you by McNamara's Nightsticks. The nightstick with more bounce to the ounce. <laughs> and now, O Dragnet. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Sergeant O'Friday. My partner is O'Smith. We're O'Cops. This is the O-City. Oh, Sergeant O'Friday, oh, what shall I do? Me husband was just shot with a revolver, stabbed with a dagger, and poisoned with arsenic. Oh, what shall I do? Bury him. <laughs> and now the McNamara Broadcasting Company takes pleasure in presenting old Dr. Malone. Brought to you by McNamara's Toothpaste. Now, here is a testimonial from McNamara's Toothpaste by a satisfied user. Me name is Patrick Liberace. I've been using McNamara's Toothpaste exclusively for ten years, and I can honestly say that thanks to McNamara's Toothpaste, my piano has the whitest ivories in County Cork. <laughs> Lovable episode in the life of lovable old Dr. Malone. Hello, old Dr. Malone. Hello, Nurse Patricia. And how do you feel today, old Dr. Malone? Old. <laughs> Those poor old hands of yours look so tired. Oh, they are tired. I can hardly lift them anymore. This morning I had to perform a tonsillectomy with me feet. Oh, I noticed. 
noticed when you took your shoes off you were wearing rubber gloves instead of socks. <laughs> Calling old Dr. Malone. Go to surgery and remove patient's appendix, liver, stomach, kidneys, lungs, and ribs. That is all. Dr. Malone, an operation like that will be very exhausting for you. Yes, but we'll take a lot more out of the patient. <laughs> well, I must be going to surgery. Miss Patricia, please help me to stand up. Yes, doctor. Oh, uh, <clears throat> there you are, old Dr. Malone. You're standing up now. Yes, he does it. Now face me toward surgery and push me a little. <laughs> take it slowly, old Dr. Malone. Remember... You're not as young as you were when you were young, Dr. Malone, old Dr. Malone. <laughs> Calling old Doc... Dr. Malone. <laughs> Never mind going to surgery. The patient couldn't wait. That is all. <laughs> and now it's time to play you bet your shillelagh. And it's now your favorite quiz master, Grouch O'Marks. <laughs> you bet your shillelagh is sponsored by the McNamara Hat Company. Now remember, every McNamara hat comes equipped with McNamara's band. And now here he is, Grouch O'Marks. That's me, folks. Before we start the program, I want to tell the home audience the secret word for tonight. The secret word is Oy vey. <laughs> We chambers, aren't we, devils? Mr. O'Marks, our first contestant is Mr. Melvin Blank. He's a cab driver from Brooklyn. Oh, good evening, Mr. Blank. From Brooklyn, are you now? Well, tell me, what made you leave Brooklyn to visit the old sod? Oh, oh, well, this may sound funny, but I wanted to see Ireland before I die. Well, that's a good time to see it. It's nothing afterwards. So you drive a cab, Mr. Blank. I, I understand American cab drivers do pretty well. Oh, I knocked down about 80 a week. Mm. Boy, that's a handsome salary. Salary nothing. I'm talking about pedestrians. <laughs> Are you married, Mr. Blank? Oh, yeah. Me and Moidle have been married for 18 years. Yeah, she's my wife. Well, congratulations. 18 years is a long time. Are you still romantic now? Yeah. And if Moidle ever finds out, she'll break my neck. Yeah, she will, too. Well, all right, Mr. Blake, here's your first question. Who is buried in Grant's tomb? Well, if it ain't Leo Rocha, they got the wrong guy. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's incorrect. I'll give you one more chance. What is the richest country in the world? Gee, I don't know. The answer is Ireland, because its capital is always Dublin. Ha, <laughs> ha! Oh, Grouch, you're still the great Irish wit. Uh, here comes the next contestant, Mr. Omar. Uh, while she's on the way to the mic, I want to remind the audience at home that the secret word is still... Oy vey. Good evening, Mr. O'Marks. My name is Rafferty Lafferty Hulahan Dulahan Guppy O'Duppy O'Kelly O'Toole Smith. <laughs> You're a pretty, Colleen. Tell me, are you married? No, I'm afraid I'm going to wind up an old maid. Sounds like fun. Why don't we go out and wind one up together? <laughs> oh, Max, your Irish witch is second only to that of Pinky Lee. 
Uh, now, here is your first question, Miss Rafferty, Lafferty, Houlihan, Dolahan, Guffio, Duffio, Kelly O'Toole. Who is buried in Grant's tomb? The great Irish tenor John McCormack. Right! Ah, <laughs> oh, you're a daughter after me own heart. You have won ten silver shillelaghs, and now for the jackpot question. What is the color of orange juice? Green. Absolutely correct. Ah, <laughs> oh, you're a smart one there, me pretty Colleen. You have won $10,000 or two tickets to a Barry Fitzgerald movie. <laughs> and now for the number one song in the McNamara hit parade. Patty McNamara and Dennis McNamara singing, It's the Irish in me. <laughs> I can charm every heart that you can. with a wink or a glance. They're bewitched from the start. Oh, you're a devil. And it isn't for nothing they say. What did they say? The boys call me Kathleen Mavorny No Shay. Oh, when I please, I can tease like an imp or an elf. And me eyes are as blue. As Killarney itself was me forefather's gift, don't you see? When they planted the Irish in me. Oh, Kathleen Mavourne in O'Shea, what a name. Oh, Dennis. When I walk, when I talk, it's the Irish in me. Makes me walk, makes me talk with a difference, you see. And it's surely old Aaron to blame For Michael O'Malley, McNulty, or Larry Fitzpatrick O'Reilly's me name When I smile, I beguile I don't mean to do I can take, even break Any poor heart in two And I don't know what else it could be it must be the Irish. But God, Dennis, you're a boy up to me own heart. It must be the Irish. Ah, you're a girl after me, heart. It must be the Irish in me. And now, before the McNamara Broadcasting Company signs off, we would like you to meet the man who has been responsible for bringing all these wonderful programs right into your very home, Mr. McNamara himself. Mr. McNamara, you've heard the programs, listen to the music. Tell us what do you think. Oy vey! <laughs> Mr. McNamara, you've just said the secret word in your phrases. A right through Brooklyn in my taxi cab. Ah, <laughs> uh, Brooklyn, I've always wanted to see Brooklyn before I died. Well, if you ride in my cab, that's just about when you'll say it. <laughs> The Dennis Day Show from March of 1955 with guest stars Mel Blanc and Patty Andrews. A bit of Blarney from the big broadcast and WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz.
Now for a story that starts on St. Patrick's Day in the Old West, courtesy of the only old-time radio show that started out as a TV program. The episode's called Irish Luck, and it comes from April 24, 1960, CBS and Have Gun Will Travel. You have me confused, O'Bannon, but don't bother to explain now. Ride out of here before that mob decides to hang you. Have Gun, Will Travel. Starring Mr. John Daner as Paladin. San Francisco, 1875, the Carlton Hotel, headquarters of a man called Paladin. Come in. Oh, good oh. morning, Mr. Paladin. Good morning, Miss Wong. You want Missy Wong help you pack? Oh, thanks. I don't think so. I'm oh. traveling light this trip. I'll be riding through some pretty rough country. Oh, where you go? I'm doing a job for an insurance company, Miss Wong. They're concerned about their losses. Want me to survey the freight routes up through the north and check with the express offices along the way. Yeah, that does it. The towns along my route were scattered and the distances were great. I had reached northern Nevada and I was following a trail that wound its way over a rugged mountain pass. The trail had been chipped from a rocky cliff, which rose straight up on one side, and then took a sheer drop of several hundred feet on the other. When I reached the top and started down toward the Humboldt River Valley, I saw a man ahead of me. He was riding lazy, guiding his horse carefully, when suddenly, on a sharp turn, the animal seemed to spook, fold up, and in the next instant was jogging down the path with an empty saddle. I couldn't travel any faster. I could only hope that when I reached the spot where the man had gone over the edge, I'd find him alive. Ooh, ooh. Hey, down there. Can you hear me? Yes, man, and it's a fine sound to be sure. Are you all right? Oh, I'm fine. Until this bit of a tree stump I'm hanging to gives way. You got any kind of foothold down there? Some. I've got a rope up here. Hold on. I'll get it to you. Oh, that's fine, sir. Oh, enough. Easy, boy. Now stand. All right. Here she goes. You got it? I got it. I tied around your waist. Yes, sir. Let me know when you're ready. I'll start hauling. Yes, I'm trying. Good. Ah, there. Ready now. All right. Here we go. Now hold it, man. What? What's the trouble? Why, would you give us a bit of slack on that rope, will you now? Uh, It's the present for Katie. What's that? Katie's present it fell out in my pocket. I can reach it if you give me a bit of slack. How's that? Oh, that's fine, sir. All right, haul away, my hearty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh. Ah, it's grateful. Uh, hey. Grateful I am to you, sir. <laughs> oh, Bannon's me name's all red, they call me, and I needn't be telling you why. And, uh, hey, when I catch me breath, I have a few words to say about that. No good. Cussed, not-headed horse that twice in a month to set me down without even so much as a by your leave. Well, never mind the horse. We better check you for broken bones. Oh, no, sir, no, no. Bannon's a tough one, though I am. Oh, hurting a bit in a few places, but uh, praise be, Katie's present is safe. Katie's present? Ah, uh, would you be after knowing what day this is, sir? Well, yes, it's Thursday. That's right, and March the 17th, and that, of course, is St. Patrick's Day. But more than that, it's the birthday of me darling Katie. Your wife? Yes, yeah, sir. Like a man, I'm afraid I was after forgetting the occasion. Until Katie, like a woman, dropped a hint here and there. So I had to saddle up and ride into town to buy her a gigaw. Well, we better get started down the trail. You go ride my horse and I'll walk. Oh, now, a fine thing that'd be. To thank a man for saving me life by taking the horse out from under him. No, sir, O'Bannon will walk. A good walker take uh, kinks out of me. It was almost sundown before we reached the O'Bannon farmhouse. Katie was waiting at the gate. She was tiny and gay and very pretty. And she insisted that I stay to share the birthday celebration. Then it got so late, they both insisted that I stay the night. They were warm, friendly people. And when I left the next morning, it was with the promise to see them on my way back. My business took me on into Idaho, and it was nearly two months before I passed through Nevada again. The last stop on my route was the town of Tuana, only 20 miles from the O'Bannon place. I checked into a hotel, then started for the Horseshoe Saloon. You ain't gonna get a drink in there, mister. Oh, why not? We're holding a trial in there today. Trial? Gonna start as soon as the judge gets here. Once it starts, it won't last long. Open and shut case. Yeah, I just kept watching. I knew I'd see the feller again someday. Well, who's that? Fellow on trial. Robbed my stage, killed my shotgun rider. I got a good look at him. I knew I'd spot him again, and I did. Over in Lander County. Sheriff brought him in. You gonna visit the trial? No. No, I have business at the freight office. Just thought I'd have a drink first. We'll fix him. Dirty killer. Fellow name of O'Bannon. O'Bannon? Know him? Well, I'm acquainted with an O'Bannon up this way, but I'm sure it isn't the same one. We're gonna fix him. Quick and good. started down the street to the Tawana freight office when I saw the sheriff bringing the prisoner from the jail. It was hard to believe. But the O'Bannon on trial was my red-haired friend of the mountain trail. He didn't glance in my direction. But I decided to postpone my business and visit the trial after all. What the court convened in the Horseshoe Saloon lacked in formality it made up for in its obvious zeal to fix him quick and good. Circuit Judge Charlie Cagle called the court to order, and Wes Barker took the stand. Uh, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, self be God? I do. Sit down. Well, there he sits, Judge. Right there. The... Now, please, Mr. Barker, not so fast. I want you to tell us just what happened. Well, the coach wasn't running just on schedule that day. We didn't have no passengers. But we had some important freight to carry. Valuable freight? Gold. 
The shipment wasn't ready on our regular time to leave, so we waited for her. And when was this? Oh, two months ago. You remember what day, exactly? Sure. It was March 17th. We just got a ways out of town, about sundown it was, when this man, and this man right here, he busts out in the road and flags us down and yells, this is a holdup. He's got a gun right in my face. Now, Joe Pinelli rode shotgun with me for six years. He knew when to throw down on a holdup man, when not to. Joe didn't throw down on this fella, but he plugged him anyway. Got a shot off at me, too, but he just nicked me. He took the gold? What he could carry. And I got a good look at him. And last month, when I seen him over in Lander County, I recognized him and told the sheriff. That's him sitting right there. Hmm. Yeah, I guess that'll be all, Mr. Parker. Judge Cagle. Your Honor. Yes. Say, don't I know you? I think so. My name is Paladin. Sure. What can I do for you, Mr. Paladin? Well, I'd like to be sworn in, Your Honor. A man's life is at stake here, and I, I just don't understand it. There's something terribly wrong. Well... Come on up here. Thank you. All right, let's let's keep it quiet now. You swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, help you, God? I do. Sit down. <laughs> Judge, if this murder and holdup occurred on March 17th, about sundown, the man sitting here, O'Bannon, can't be guilty. Quiet down. Let's keep order. Why do you say that? Because I was with O'Bannon on March 17th, at that time. And he was over 40 miles from here. Let's have order, please. Well, now, you better tell us the whole story. Start from the beginning, Mr. Paladin. All right, case dismissed. That's all for today. Mister? Yeah. I can't figure what your game is, but you sure didn't make yourself any friends here. Look, I'm sorry, Barker. I told the truth. Yeah. You might have put a reasonable doubt in the judge's mind, but I know better. You said yourself it was almost sundown when the holdup occurred, and it must have all happened pretty fast. You could be mistaken, you know. No. No mistake. I saw O'Bannon kill my shotgun rider. Joe had a lot of friends. If the law ain't going to take care of the man that murdered him, maybe his friends will have to. Uh, that's mighty careless talk, Barker. Look at that. Sheriff's turning him loose. That dirty killer walking out of town a free man when he ought to be hanging on the end of a rope right now. And we can thank you for buttoning him with your big lying mouth. I didn't lie. I know better. Now, like I say, I don't know what your game is, but it ain't over yet. Here comes your friend. He ain't seen the last of this. You can tell him. Hey, O'Bannon. Oh, hello, friend. O'Bannon, you better get out of here. Well, thanks, and uh, what do I owe you? What do you mean? Well, one good turn deserves another. What What can I do for you? What, what, what do you want? Well, I don't want anything. I had to tell the truth. Truth? Dear mister, you never saw me before in your life, and you know it. Listen, if it's some sort of a joke, I don't appreciate it. And I'm afraid this is no time for questions and answers. These people watching us, they're in an ugly mood. Ah, they, they, they don't waste any love on me, do they? They're dangerous. I've seen it happen too many times. You better get out of town as fast as you can. Oh, but I intend to. I have my plans all made. And uh, thanks again, friend, for your, for your pretty lies. You have me real confused, O'Bannon. But I'll expect some answers for this, and they better be good. 
I'll ride out to your place tomorrow. My place? All right, just get going, O'Bannon. Oh, sure. There you go. There you go. Oh, Paladin. What? You'll find me at North Fork. I watched O'Bannon walk away, trying in my mind to make some kind of sense out of the whole thing. His last remark was easily heard by the people left in the courtroom, and with the mood that crowd was in, he might just as well have been sending out invitations to his own lynching. There was no question about it. If he really intended to show up in North Fork, he'd have a lot of angry men waiting for him. As soon as I had finished my business the next day, I headed out of town in the direction of the O'Bannon farmhouse. I wanted to see Katie. As I rode up to the house, I noticed a winded, lathered horse, ground-tied, in the front yard. Ooh. Ooh. Go, Katie! You black Stand back! Go on, stand by! Hey, Katie! Katie! What have you done? O'Bannon. O'Bannon. He's dead. God have mercy on me. Give me the gun. Oh, it had to be done. I don't understand this, Katie. Your own husband... No, 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 not my husband, not Red. It is Liam O'Bannon lies there. Liam? Born of the same mother within the same hour. And on the outside, as alike as two peas in a pod, my man and Liam. But inside, one is black and one is white. Oh, wait a minute, Katie. You mean this man is your husband's twin brother? Yes. But my O'Bannon is the daylight. And this one, the dark, possessed of the evil ones he was. I knew it then, when they, the two came courting and it was Red I chose to marry. What was Liam doing here? It was after forcing me to leave this place with him. With wicked words of how he'd sent my O'Bannon riding off to his death. Off to it. Katie, where's Red? Gone to answer the call of Liam, as he always has, should Liam so much as crook his little finger. One of Liam's rogues that traveled with him came early this morning with a message. What was the message? That Red should ride to North Fork. North Fork? And wait until Liam should meet him there. But Liam came here instead to take me off with him. Katie, it just might be that Red is riding to his death. How long ago did he start? Oh, oh, some time now. I'll have to go after him. Katie, will you get me a blanket? Oh, yes. I'm afraid Liam must ride with me. As the crow flies, North Fork wasn't far. But the trail over the mountain was narrow and winding and travel was slow. With the head start Red had, it was a chancy thing whether I could reach there in time to save him from the trap he was riding into. It was late in the day when I saw the little town just ahead. All right, mister, that's far enough. Parker. Drop your gun. I've got something to tell you. We had to listen to you once before. We're done listening now. Drop the gun. Mister... We ain't going to take any interference this time. I told you it's up to us now to take care of the man who killed our friend Joe Pinelli. 
We're waiting for him. You mean he hasn't shown up yet? No, but we'll get him. Well, you won't have to wait any longer. The man you want is riding my second horse, wrapped in that blanket. What are you talking about? See for yourself. Jim, all right. What happened? Doesn't matter. The death of your friend Joe Pinelli has been avenged, Barker. An eye for an eye. That's what you wanted, isn't it? So now I trust you'll give Liam O'Bannon a suitable burial. Then I started back down the mountain trail. Whatever had delayed Red O'Bannon's trip to North Fork had saved his life. But I became more and more concerned as to what had happened to him. I reached the end of the rocky ledge, and there, off to the right, in a grassy meadow, was a horse that looked somehow familiar. He was nibbling grass and wearing an empty saddle. I turned around and went back up the trail. Hey, Red! Red, O'Bannon! Hey! Hey, Red! Like the horse of an angel! Red? Yes! Red, you all right? For the time being. Yeah, Paladin. Yeah? That no-good, cussed, knot-headed horse, he did it again. Yeah, well, you can be mighty grateful to that no-good, cussed, knot-headed horse. What's that? Never mind. I'll get the rope. Will Travel. Created by Herb Meadow and Sam Rolfe, is produced and directed in Hollywood by Frank Paris and stars John Daner as Paladin with Virginia Gregg as Miss Wong. Tonight's story was specially written for Have Gun, Will Travel by Ann Dowd. Specially featured in the cast was Ben Wright with Harry Bartell, Jack Moyles, and Gene Bates. This is Hugh Douglas inviting you to join us again next week when CBS Radio presents... Have Gun, Will Travel. Have Gun, Will Travel is brought to you through the worldwide facilities of the Armed Forces Radio and Television Service.
John Daner as the gunman Paladin in Irish Luck, an episode of Have Gun, Will Travel, from a month or so after St. Patrick's Day in 1960. Back in the day, there was a third significance to March 15th, in addition to its being two days before St. Patrick's Day and the famous Roman date, the Ides of March. Until 1955, March 15th was also Tax Day. And that's the reason you'll hear a joke about paying income tax in our next program, a detective show. Taxes would have been well in people's minds on February 15th, 1953, just a month before the deadline, when this episode, The Girl on the Doorstep, aired over NBC on the series Barry Craig, Confidential Investigator. William Gargan stars as Barry Craig, Confidential Investigator. I wonder if murderers, like other people, worry about their income taxes. When they make a killing, for example, do they always report it, or do they just list their victims under uh, buried assets? The National Broadcasting Company presents William Gargan in another transcribed drama of mystery and adventure with America's number one detective, Barry Craig, confidential investigator. Barry Craig speaking. I'd been to a movie. It was about a private eye who pinned a wreath on a murderer after an hour and a half of swallowing dry martinis, wrestling amorously with youthful blondes, and wearing a succession of the best-pressed suits ever seen off a tailor's dummy. I decided to walk home. I wondered if there was a special license that a plain investigator like me could get that would make me like martinis and make blondes like me. It was close to one in the morning. The air was raw and cold with the tang of metal in it you get in New York. The afternoon slush had hardened to ice underneath your feet. And I decided you'd probably need more than a license when I saw her. Halfway up the block, an apartment house lobby spilled some light out into the street. Enough light so I could see that she was young, redheaded, with that pale, almost transparent skin redheads sometimes have. The guy with her had his back to me. It was an old scene. He was probably making a play for a nightcap up in her apartment. She shook her head and moved into the doorway. He moved after her, maybe for a goodnight kiss. It was none of my business. I started walking. He must have tried for more than a kiss and wound up with a slap in the face. He came stumbling backwards out of the doorway, hit the ice on the pavement, and went down. I heard the door slam behind her. Either she hadn't noticed him fall or she didn't care. He wasn't moving when I got to him. A pavement can be pretty hard when you slap it with the back of your head. I tried shaking him, but he wasn't playing. I lifted his head, thinking maybe that might help bring him to, and then I eased it back onto the pavement. I couldn't be sure if the skull was broken, but by that time I was sure of something else. He'd quit breathing. Not a nice way to wind up a date with a pretty redhead. I thought she might want to know about it. 
There were a dozen names on the bellboard in the small lobby. Any one of them could have belonged to the redhead. I pushed the supers button. I tried the inside door. It was locked. A well-run apartment house. Supers probably need their sleep as much as anybody, but they frequently don't get it. Well, what do you want? I'm sorry I had to wake you. There's been a small accident. Yeah, what kind of an accident? Somebody slipped on the ice in front of the building. What are you, a lawyer? No, no. Nobody could have slipped in front of the building. I put plenty of ashes on the ice. It ain't slippery. Well, come on and look for yourself. Okay, but if you think you've got a case... I don't know the man. It's none of my business. Well, if he thinks he's Come on. And he's not thinking of suing anybody. Uh, Maybe he ain't, but if you've been a super as long as I have, you know they're always looking for a chance to stick an insurance company. You uh, still think he's looking for anything? Well, the, the guy's dead, ain't he? Yeah. Well, that's terrible. Uh-huh. You better call the police. Tell them to send an ambulance down, too, on the chance we're not such good diagnosticians. Okay, sure. And while you're doing that, I... I might as well break the news to the redhead. Huh? He'd brought her home, said goodnight to her when it happened. You mean some girl in this building? Yeah. Maybe uh, 20, pale skin, red hair, pretty. You, you couldn't mistake her. Mister, maybe you couldn't, but... There ain't no girl like that living in this building. The skin on my back crawled a bit when he let me have it. Then I shrugged it off. Maybe she was staying with some people in the building. The super wouldn't have to know about that. Maybe. Yes, officer, he's laying out in front just like he fell. Yeah, well, there's some guy here who's seen it. Name's Craig. Yeah, we ain't tried moving him. Okay, officer. Well, I'll be right over. Good. Uh, About that redhead. Look, I've been super here for seven years. I know every family in this building. They've all been here for years. Well, she might be staying with one of them. There was some burglaries in the neighborhood the last couple of weeks. I checked on all the door keys. Today, there was nobody staying with nobody. Well, it might have been a sudden... She wouldn't have had no key. She didn't have to have one. She could have pushed a button and... No. No, huh? I was too close. If she'd had to wait for somebody to click the door catch down in the lobby, I'd have seen her. Well, maybe she ducked out again. Uh-uh. So what does that mean? I don't know what it means. Except maybe it's going to be quite a while before she finds out what happened to her date. <laughs> It didn't take long for the police to arrive or the ambulance. They move pretty fast. They always do. They've had experience. And on this trip, they also had Lieutenant Rogers of Homicide. Barry? Yeah, Lieutenant? You're not curious enough. The uh, police doctor said the guy was dead, didn't he? He's dead. What should I be curious about? About why I came down on an accident case. I figured maybe it was on account of your college education. What would that have to do with it? I wouldn't know. I never went to college. You're being a big help. What do you want me to be helpful about? I came down because when the report came in, your name was mentioned. So you decided I was involved. Aren't you? No. You've got my story. Yeah, you just happened to be walking. You just happened to notice the redhead and the corpse and so on. That's right. It's hard to believe. Why? Because I'm an investigator. I don't have a right to witness an accident. Not an accident that happened to Walter Borley. Borley? 
That's the corpse? That's the corpse. I've heard the name before. Sure you have. Walter Baldy's a big man. Or was, in the Midwest. In New York, he's just dead. It could be a coincidence. He came here to collect a debt. Owed by who? He'd run a string of buggy joints here for years. He sold out maybe six months ago, went to Detroit. But he had trouble getting paid. So he came back. You never get paid now. Who'd he sell out to? We've got a couple of guesses. Any names attached? Mark Wheeler, Joe Carson. Neither of them are redheads. No. Barry, the boys went through the building. No redheads on the premises. It's a pity. I've got a thought, though. Yes? Let's take a walk through the building. All right. Any, uh, particular direction? Yeah, along the hallway here. Should lead to the back door. Oh? Which should be locked. Well, let's see. But isn't. The super's going to have to do some explaining. There have been burglaries. The super's okay. Take a look at the lock. The lock? It's been forced. Yeah. That's happy news for a local locksmith, perhaps. But, uh, where does it fit in? I don't know. Might tell us how the girl got out of the building. But that's not the problem, is it? It's how she got in that bothers me. How much does it bother you? Not much, I guess. Because it still remains an accident. Doesn't it? Walter Borley went to the morgue. Lieutenant Rogers went back to headquarters. And Barry Craig bought a drink. Thanks. Say, Mac. Yeah? Suppose a man had an opinion about a horse. Where would he go to do something about it? There's a cigar store on 3rd. The owner would be glad to listen to your opinions. Or the clerk over at the Armstrong Hotel. No, no, no. That's for small opinions. I've got a king-size opinion. Real big? Tell you, Craig, I wouldn't be surprised if you was to get a phone call first thing tomorrow. Well, that'd be too late. I get nervous carrying big bills around. Who knows, I might lose them before morning. Say, Craig, there's a new hot spot opened over on the west side. Yeah? Someplace in the 40s, I think. They call it the Three Aces. Got a wonderful floor show. Three Aces. Carson would be one, Wheeler another. Could be the third. If I'd been to one doctor, I'd been to a dozen. Never did me any good, though. Some days I can't hear a thing. Okay, Mac. Doesn't matter much about that third ace anyway. He's been trumped. The three aces was over on the west side, someplace in the 40s. They weren't letting the night die without a struggle. Everything is satisfactory, sir? Sure, except for one thing. I'm lonely. I'd like to have a man-to-man conversation with someone. Someone named Joe Carson, say. Or maybe Mark Wheeler. I'd even talk to Walter Borley. I'm very sorry, sir, but I've never heard of... Ever seen one of these before? Well... Pretty shade of green, isn't it? Nice picture of Andrew Jackson on it. Go on. Have a good look. Oh, thank you, sir. You're welcome. I, uh, I will see if one of the gentlemen you mentioned happens to be around. You do that? Yes, sir. Mind if I sit down? Nope. How do you like the floor show? Not bad. One of these nights, I'll come back and look at the floor. That's very funny. So-so. 
The waiter tells me you wanted words with my partner or me. The waiter's right. You wanted those words quite a few bucks worth. I figured it was the only way I'd get them. I don't like to see men throw money away. I'm Carson. Fine. Uh, speaking of floor shows, uh, one of the regular girls is out tonight, isn't she? Which one? Well, we never got around to throwing names, but she describes easy. Around 20, redheaded, with a very white skin. Yeah, now you mention it, she's not working the show tonight. Too bad. I was looking forward to seeing her. Well, that can be arranged. Well, uh, arrange it. Okay. Only one thing. Yeah? She might not be in the right mood. See that door next to the bandstand? Yeah, I see it. If she's in the right mood, somebody will open it for you. Thanks. Don't mention it. It took him maybe five minutes to find out if the girl was in the right mood. If that's what he was finding out. Either way, at the end of five minutes, the door next to the bandstand swung open. Somebody outside the door had done the swinging. I didn't have a chance to see who. I wasn't sure that I was playing it the right way, but I couldn't think of anything else. Nobody paid any attention to me. I crossed to the door and looked through it. The little I could see was a stretch of dirty hallway. But if you're a confidential investigator, you're not too fastidious. I walked through the doorway and shut the door behind me and turned, but not fast enough. to Barry Craig in just a moment. And now, back to William Gargan, starring as Barry Craig, confidential investigator. I didn't know how far I'd gone and how long I'd been away, but it took a while coming back. And even then, I didn't try opening my eyes or moving my head. I had a feeling it was going to hurt. You had him sapped. Why? Look, Wheeler, he came here asking for us. He fed me a phony routine about a redhead with white skin. Nina. Yeah, Nina, being part of the floor show. I don't care. You don't know all of it yet. I've been through his pockets. You know who he is? Look, Carson. A private eye named Craig. Now, what would you have wanted me to do? Invite him in to go over our books? That might have been safer than what you did do. Huh? I just got a call from one of the newspaper boys down at headquarters. Borley was brought in a few minutes ago. Borley at headquarters? Wasn't his idea. The apartment they took him to was the morgue. I don't believe you. You sure of this? I'm sure of it. Well, what's bad with that news? It ain't no secret he'd come to town to collect. Off us. With him dead, who do you think the cops are going to be looking for? Maybe I shouldn't have started nothing with this character here, but... Wait a minute. When did Baldy get it? Around one. It's two now. If what you're handing me is true, the cops should have already been visiting. According to what the press was told, Borley died in an accident. So what are we worrying about? The cops have handed out phony releases before. I don't get it. 
Either you want to make trouble or... Or you know better than the press. Where were you around one o'clock? That's a funny question coming from you. What do you care? Oh, forget it. Maybe I'm getting jumpy, but... How does this guy fit in? And Nina. Nina ain't been around the club all night, which means she don't fit in. Him? I don't know. Maybe he heard about Bawley, too. I've been thinking of that. Maybe we don't take no chances on... Maybe. He's out cold. Never know what... Okay, Carson. Get a couple of the boys in. Now you're talking. Sure I'm talking, but... I could be talking myself into the chair. So far, I'd been doing fine with my eyes shut. But that wouldn't last much longer. Carson's boys would be glad to shut them again for me if I opened them at the wrong time. So I had to open them at the right time. Keep an eye on Sonny Boy. Yeah. Sonny Boy. Pretty soon, no Sonny Boy. Wheeler was the nervous type, the floor pacer. Seven steps to the door, about turn, seven steps to the desk, about turn, and the same routine repeated. The time he'd give me a quick look was when he passed me on the way to the door. On the fourth step, the fifth step would have to be my play. It would have to be fast and reasonably quiet. But how fast I could get off the floor, I didn't know. I'd find out. Step to the desk. Turn. Now back. The fifth step. Remember? Two. Three. Four. Five. That's my forearm. Locked around your throat. Things you learn in the army. I increase the pressure an ounce, Wheeler, and that's all. Want a broken neck? That's nice. Now turn the gun around in your hand. Hold it by the barrel. Yeah. Poke it backwards toward me. That's the way. Thanks. Gun butts make a funny sound hitting a man's head. I didn't stop to laugh like mad. Carson and a couple of pals would be dropping in at any minute. There was a window behind the desk. I could have stopped to raise it, but I was in a hurry, and besides, I wasn't anxious to save a penny for the three aces, so I... went through it fast and wasteful. The alley wasn't any cleaner than the hallway had been, but it was darker, and it didn't lead to a dead end. Well, Lieutenant Rogers. What? Oh, hello, Barry. I hope I'm not intruding. That's a nice hope. I need a little help in a lot of hurry. Important? I don't know. It could be. Even a giraffe couldn't stick out as much neck for you as I do. All right, we're in a hurry with a police escort. To get where? The uh, three aces. One's been trumped, but the game's not over yet. their instructions. Front and back of the club's covered. We go in. If you don't mind. I don't mind. Three, three aces. Yeah. Good evening, gent. Yeah, I'm back again. I brought company with me, though. Lieutenant Rogers, homicide. I... I... Save it for your lawyer. 
Take us to the office. I, I will ring. No, no. We want a personal guide. That way we can be sure it'll be a surprise. Move, huh? Yes, sir. That quiet authority always gets them. Ah, uh, the badge. Don't be modest. A couple of square inches of tin isn't that impressive. I, uh, I don't know what Mr. Wheeler will... Nobody passed the law. You have to know anything. Now knock. If a man answers, tell him you're checking the wine list or something. Yeah, uh, yes, sir. Open the door. No. Yeah. I'll explain the reason why to you. If anybody inside has the idea trouble's coming and is preparing to blow down anyone in the doorway, you'll be the one. I won't. Sure you will. All right. Mr. Wheeler. Move over, Buster. That's Wheeler? Yeah. We met earlier. I had the pleasure of knocking him down with the butt of a gun. He got up. Yeah. Sat down behind his desk and proceeded to blow his brains out. Looks that way. But I'm stupid. What do you mean? I don't know why he killed himself. You'd escaped. He knew you'd come to the police. He was through in the bookie racket. He still had a skin, his own. Boys like that are very fond of their skin. It'll be a hard thing to prove anything. Looks like suicide. Sure. Just like Borley's passing on looked like accident. It was an accident. No, Trev. Not an accident at all. The police guard around the club got us nothing but a handful of small crooks. Carson was conspicuously among those missing. We asked lots of people for his home address, and lots of people didn't know it. We uh, got the whole department on it, Barry. They'll turn him up. Maybe, maybe not. He couldn't have made it out of the city. He didn't have to. Meaning? The setup back at the club goes for suicide. You will never be able to prove otherwise. As for the accident... That you call murder. There's only one way you can tie him to it. The girl. We did dig up a name for her. Nina West. Pretty name. A pretty girl. And right now, very possibly a dead girl. Oh, you can't be sure. Put yourself in Carson's place. She's the one who can send him to the chair. With her dead, you've got nothing. Not even... And get this, Trav, not even a motive that would stand up in court for his killing her. I went out and took a look at what had happened to the night. The sky was getting lighter. The winter sun would be sneaking over the tops of the buildings in an hour or two. Not handing out much warmth, but a promise anyway. I started walking. I didn't try to think, because the only thoughts I had on tap weren't very pleasant. Nina West wasn't the kind of girl your mother hoped you'd marry, but she was young, pretty. I didn't think she'd known what was going to happen to her date. If she'd lived, maybe someday she'd have walked into my office in the old building on Madison Avenue and asked me to find a lost dog for her, and suddenly walking wasn't fast enough for me. I needed a cab fast. I needed to go someplace fast. Only a hunch. But it was the one chance we had. The one chance Nina West had. If she'd gone where I had to get to within minutes, my office. Hang around. I might need you. I didn't bother with the elevator. I used the stairs. They're faster. 
sounded good to me, the hunch. Say the girl hadn't known what Carson was letting her in for. She found out late. Bawley already dead. I slowed down, heading down the hallway to the office. It might be smarter not to announce an arrival. She'd have realized she was in trouble. Gone home? No. Carson knew where that was. But I'd barged into the club. Carson was busy with me. She might have heard him use my name. Maybe. Maybe she'd think of my office. Because a girl like that wouldn't go to the police. The lights were on in the office. I hadn't left them on. Someone was inside. Someone or a, a couple of someones. Had Carson tried her home? Found her out? Tried half a dozen other places she might have gone that he knew of? And then wound up with the same conclusion I had? There was no way to play it fancy, which was just as well. I'm not the fancy type. I hit the door hard and went to the floor. She screamed, but the shots drowned her out. I wound up against the desk, Carson to one side of me. The girl cut between us and got the bullet Carson had meant for me. He didn't have another try. No, don't! The gun! I'll, I'll drop it, see? Thanks. The rest is going to be for the fun of it. It didn't last very long. He dropped his hands. You can't hit even a Carson with his hands down unless you're a Carson yourself. I didn't qualify. We uh, got a deposition from her before she went into surgery. Carson's all washed up, Barry, but uh, the kid's got a good chance. Fine. He had it laid out beautifully. Nina was told of Bawley take her home to the building where you saw them. For a gag, Carson told her. Carson broke into the building through the back door and was waiting in the lobby with the inside door propped open. He slugged Bawley across the back of the head hard enough to break the skull, pushed him backwards. Then he and the girl scrammed through the back door. The perfect murder. Except for... For what, Barry? The ashes on the sidewalk, for one thing. Paulie couldn't have slipped on the ice. The other thing? The girl got into the building only one way. Somebody had to be waiting there to let her in. That made the word accident smell. Hmm. Let's go home, huh? Sure. Hey. Look. Came the dawn. You've been listening to William Gargan in another exciting transcribed mystery drama from the adventures of Barry Craig, confidential investigator. Barry Craig, confidential investigator, the episode called The Girl on the Doorstep from the winter of 1953. It's the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer. Douglas Bell is our audio engineer. And this is WAMU Washington. 
We're your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 Ocean City, on your smart speaker, and online at WAMU.org. It's March 15th, so we thought we'd look into one of the lesser-known works by one of America's greatest authors, Thornton Wilder, his post-World War II novel, The Ides of March. Mr. Wilder's book is an epistolary novel, telling its story through fictitious letters about often factual events in ancient Rome. But the adapters of this radio version came up with a clever device to get us through a 300-page book. We're taken to a lecture inside a college classroom, which is kind of meta because the NBC University Theater actually offered listeners real college-level instruction through its broadcasts, as you'll hear. As the novelist Kurt Vonnegut wrote, the lesson of Mr. Wilder's book is that it is human nature that does not change no matter the era or situation. Whatever you end up thinking about this historical fiction from the great Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright and novelist, you'll have to agree that he gives us a fleshed-out portrait of Julius Caesar unlike any other. It's a character that the distinguished actor Henry Hull brings to life in a virtuoso performance. Also in the cast is Georgia Bacchus, an extraordinary woman who was one of the inventors of radio drama. She wrote, she produced, she acted, including many performances for Orson Welles' Mercury Theater. A little over two years after this Ides of March broadcast, her career was ended by the House Committee on Un-American Activities and the Hollywood Blacklist. From July 2nd, 1949, it's the NBC University Theater production of Thornton Wilder's 1948 novel, The Ides of March. From the NBC University Theater, Mr. Henry Hull in The Ides of March by Thornton Wilder. We bring you a radio play by Brainerd Duffield and Emerson Crocker, adapted from one of last year's most provocative books, Thornton Wilder's The Ides of March. The Ides of March added new luster to the already glittering reputation of Mr. Wilder and proved a distinguished addition to a list that included such fine titles as The Bridge of San Luis Rey, The Woman of Andros, Our Town, and The Skin of Our Teeth. At the time of publication, it was the subject of much critical praise, and it was a selection of the Book of the Month Club. To star in today's radio version of The Ides of March... We are proud to have with us one of the most powerful actors of the American stage and screen, Mr. Henry Hull. And to comment on the book behind the radio play, Professor Beaumont Brustel of the University of Tulsa. Dr. Brustel's intermission commentary is recorded. Here, then, The Ides of March, starring Henry Hull. We are fortunate in having with us today as guest lecturer, Professor Willard, who has come down from State University to speak to us on aspects of ancient Rome. Professor Willard. 
Thank you. I must begin by telling you that I have devoted 30 years to a study of the correspondence and memoranda of Julius Caesar. So you can imagine my astonishment when last year a vast bulk of highly interesting, I may say unique documents, came to light on the island of Capri. It would appear that they were written by Julius Caesar to his friend Lucius Mamilius Tyrannus in the year 45 B.C., and indeed on into the next year when they were cut short on the Ides of March. Picture with me now, if you can, that blue Mediterranean world in the last glorious days of the Roman Republic. Picture the marble temples, the dark cypresses, the splashing fountains, uh, and so forth. This, then, is the first letter, dated August 20, the year 45 B.C. That's some 1,500 years before Columbus. It was written by Caesar, and it reads, My dear old friend, prepare your thoughts for my guidance. It is midnight. It is midnight. I sit alone before my window and look out on the city. I left my wife sleeping and had tried to quiet my thoughts by reading the poetry of Lucretius. Oh, my friend, every day I feel more pressure upon me arising from the position I occupy. I am the dictator, but I think a good one. I've pacified the world. I've reformed the calendar. I've extended the benefits of Roman citizenship to innumerable men and women. Next month, torture will be removed from the penal code. Yet still, I am much hated. Oh, my friend, oh, my friend, what are the capabilities of the human being? Man, what is that? What do we know of him? His gods, liberty, mind, love, destiny, death. What do these mean? You remember how you and I as boys, studying in Athens, and later before our tents in Gaul, used to turn these things over endlessly. I, I'm an adolescent again, philosophizing. As Plato said, the best philosophers in the world are boys with their beards new on their chins. I am a boy again, but, but hush. There has just been a change of guard at my door. The sentries have clashed their swords and exchanged the password. The password for tonight is Caesar Watches. The password for tonight is Caesar Watches. I think you students will see that this is rather a remarkable letter, revealing, let us say, the meditative Caesar. Uh, yes, you have a question back there? Uh, sir, I'd like to ask, who was Turinus? Who was Turinus? Well, now, we know of Turinus mostly from Caesar's history of the Belgian Wars. In the second battle with the Belgians in the year 51, the enemy captured Turinus. He had been gone 30 hours before Caesar realized he was missing. They rescued him, but he was in a pitiable state. The enemy, in order to extract information from him, had been progressively cutting off his limbs and depriving him of his senses. They had cut off an arm and a leg, perhaps more, put out his eyes, cropped his ears, and were about to burst his eardrums when Caesar rescued him. After that time, by his own wish, he lived alone in a villa on Capri, absolutely walled off. <clears throat> yes, well now, I shall go on to the second letter, dated September 3rd. My dear friend Turinus, 
I am putting into this week's packet to you a sheaf of poems. I want you to tell me what you think of them. They are by a young man named Catullus, and I think the mastership of Rome more worth administering since I have seen these examples of what our Latin tongue can do. This Catullus is as eloquent in hatred as he is in love, and he seems to hate me bitterly. I don't know why. The verses I am sending are written in praise of Claudia Pulker, that reckless woman who continues to be a daily scandal. Claudia and that abominable brother of hers have invited us to dinner. Oh, by the way, I, I need hardly say we are not attending. Wait, wait, wait. Someone's coming. I must lay down my pen a while. Yes, who is knocking? It is I, nephew. My dear Aunt Julia. Oh, dear boy, forgive me for taking the time of the master of the world. But may I ask you one question? As many as you like. It's about this invitation. Claudia Polker and her brother have invited me to dinner on the last day of the month. And they tell me, dear boy, that you will be there too. My dear Aunt, I have no intention of going to Claudia's dinner. Oh? But Pompeia says that you will go. My wife said that? Yes, Caius. Where is Pompeia? Well, she's out there in the hall. I thought as much. Pompeia, come in here, please. You called me, did you, darling? Did you, dear? Come here, to me. Yes, Caius. I thought we had decided, you and I, not to go to Claudia's reception. Had we, Caius? I must confess, nephew, it surprised me to hear that you were dining with that wicked woman. Why, while I was in the country, I had scandalized letters every day from Sempronia Metalla and Fulvia Manso and all the other ladies. I to... don't care. I want to go to Mousy's party. Well, really, Pompeia. I think, Aunt Julia, you'd better let me speak to my wife alone. I thought it had been decided that we wouldn't go, but I see we must discuss it further. Just as you like, nephew. Forgive my presumption. Pompeia? I'm going to be stern with you. Oh, Caius. It makes me unhappy to refuse you anything. You know that. Now, three or four times you have listened and agreed and accepted my reasons for not going to Claudia's dinner. You really try my patience. You don't love me. Darling, don't I return to you daily from my work with the most affectionate expectation? Don't I pass all the time with you that isn't devoted to my official duties? You know I do. I don't care. I want to go to Mousy's party. I wish you wouldn't call her by that name. She's my master. Call her your panther or your tigress, if you like. But in Jove's name, not mousy. Oh, are we never to have any enjoyment in our life? Any pleasure at all? You knew very well when you married me that my position did not permit the leisure and freedom that most men enjoy. Many women envy you. Well, I don't care if they do. Every request I put to you, you refuse. I cannot go to the theater. I cannot go to the temple of Isis and Osiris. I cannot... It's not suitable for you to be seen in such places. Oh, every morning we quarrel, and every night you apologize. But I never make any progress. I never get what I want. My dear, why are you so set on going to this dreadful dinner? Well, Marcy... Hmm? Uh, that is, Claudia had the loveliest dress sent me from Sorrento and were to dress as twins at the party, she and I. Oh, I've tried on the dress and it's divine. It just matches my Etruscan tiara. What other reason do you have for wanting to invade that serpent's nest? Well, Marcy's promised to serve that Egyptian ragout of seafood and I'm to have the sheep's head with roast apples and peaches soaked in Albanian spirit. There's no other reason? Why, yes, Caius, of course. The people... There'll be such lovely people there. Mm, and who will be there? Well, Cicero is invited, and you know how witty he is. And Mousy's brother Clodius will be there. Yes, 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 I know he will. Oh, and he's a terribly attractive person and so sympathetic. 
even though he does have such a frightful reputation with the ladies. Pompeia, if ever I hear of your being more than barely polite to that, that, that scoundrel, I shall thrash you, divorce you, and bar you from my house. Oh, what a thing to say. I'm sure Claudius has always been a perfect gentleman to me. He's a beast. He's worse than his sister. Avoid him. Now, now, what other charming people will be there? Oh, yes, who else? Well, there's Catullus, the young man that writes such clever poetry, and Asinius Polio. Oh, are you, uh, are you sure Catullus will be there? Of course I am. Oh, yes. oh, I know he writes simply horrifying verses about you, dear, but they're awfully clever, you'll have to admit it. Never mind, my dear. Since, uh, since you've set your heart on it, well, we'll go. May we? Oh, may we, Caius? Oh, I see it all now. Why didn't I tell you in the beginning that the poet would be there? There, 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 that's enough. Now run along and tell Aunt Julia your news. And write to Claudia and say that we are coming. Go along, go along, I have a letter to finish. Uh, uh, where did I put that pen? Where did I... Ah, yes, oh, yes. you and your letters. Goodbye, my darling Caesar. I do love you. <laughs> ah, yeah. Well, goodbye, my dear. I have changed my mind. We shall dine at Claudia Pulka after all. She is a woman of beauty, high birth, and conspicuous intelligence. And when I was young, I was in love with her. Besides, she will introduce me to Catullus. Besides, she will introduce me to Catullus. And here the letter ends. Now, before I go on, are there questions? Yes? Uh, I'd like to ask, Professor, would you tell us something about Claudia... Claudia Pulka. Well, she was quite notorious, you know. Uh, how many here have heard of her? Ah, yes, quite a few. And, and how many know the name Catullus? Uh, yes, well, uh, for the benefit of those who don't, I shall say that Catullus was a very great poet who addressed his most passionate poetry to Lady Claudia Pulka, a blasé and dissolute woman. I... Suppose our modern Freudian psychologists would have an explanation for such a person. She must sometime in her youth have had a very unpleasant experience uh, with a man. Uh, she, she led a, let us say, a highly immoral existence. Uh, but at any rate, poor Catullus seemed blind to her faults. And although she treated him most cruelly, he worshipped her and did whatever she told him. Uh, does that answer your question? Yes, thank you. Uh, unfortunately, we do not have Caesar's account of Claudia's dinner party on the 30th of September, but we do have the account set down some years later by Asinius Polio, who was also a guest that evening. In the words of Asinius Polio... We had been awaiting the arrival of the dictator and his party, and a large crowd had gathered outside Claudia's house to watch him pass. Then some terrified servants burst in to tell us the news. An attempt had been made on divine Caesar's life. I must say that Claudia seemed deeply shocked, though from that day to this the people of Rome have believed that she and her brother had hired bullies to waylay and assassinate their guest. I left at once and I found Caesar sitting in a courtyard being treated for his wounds. The physician was washing and binding these with sea moss while Caesar sat there jesting. Good physician, good physician, make haste, make haste. I, I shall be late to dinner. Hail, Caesar, I came as quickly as I could. Asinius, you, you are welcome. We shall not be long, I promise you. Ah, 
There, there, have you finished? Sire, I now ask of you absolute quiet in sleep. Will the dictator graciously drink this opiate? Good physician, I shall obey you in two hours. But first, the sinews and I have an errand to perform nearby. Sire, you must not. I tell you that I must. As soon as my wife and aunt dare not venture forth again, but you and I must keep our dinner engagement with Lady Claudia Polka and her guests. As you wish, sire. Ah, here. Here, my friend. Have you seen this leaflet? Let me look at it. To every Roman worthy of his ancestors, prepare to shake off tyranny. Death to Caesar. Yes, master, I have seen these. They are scattered all about the city. The men who attacked me have been captured, and with them a dozen of these pamphlets. Signed, the Committee of Twenty. Mm, yes, yes. My, my secret police, for all their interesting methods, have not been able to arrest this committee. But at least we know the author of the pamphlet. His rooms were searched, and the original copies found there. Who is this man? The young poet we are going to meet this evening. Not Catullus. That is his name. You understand now why I am so eager to make his acquaintance? Sire, let me imprison him. Put him to the torture. No, no, I have reasons for wanting him alive. Give me your arm, Asinius. Centurion, have your soldiers go before and clear the Palatine way. As we drew near to Clodia's house, we could see that the police were trying to disperse the crowd. Caesar walked toward them, smiling, and when they saw him, a cry went up. gods preserve Rome and all who love her. Your enemies have attempted to take my life. But I am still among you, capable and earnest to serve your welfare. Return to your homes, draw your wives and your children about you, and give thanks to the gods. Then, sleep well. A measure of wheat shall be given to every father that he and his may rejoice with me. Go quietly to your homes, my friends. We went into the house where Clodia and Catullus stood waiting. The other guests, and with them her brother, had fled by the back door for fear of the mob. Welcome, great Caesar. My dear Claudia Polka, forgive me for being so very late. And I must apologize for the absence of my wife and aunt. They have been unavoidably detained. I too must apologize for the absence of Clodius, my brother. He was unexpectedly called away. She is. Uh, uh, and this, this is Catullus, eh? Yes. This is the poet. He is still here. He is always with me. Good evening, dictator. Good evening, poet. Claudia, surely the dinner is not all spoiled. You can order us one dish, and while it is prepared, we can begin without drinking. It shall be done. Asinius, fill our cups. Yes, sire. I see, Claudia... That you prepared for dinner in the Greek manner, that is well. After we dine, we shall have a feast of talk. Also in the manner of the Greeks, for the company is well chosen, and there is no lack of subjects for discussion. You are the master, Caesar. Let the music begin. I poured the wine, and dinner was begun. My opinion of Claudia Pulka had never been as harsh as that held by the majority of our community, and never did I have occasion to admire her more than on that evening. Her house was in disorder, her brother had fled, and she herself lay under suspicion of having planned the attempt on the dictator's life. Yet she remained serene, her famous beauty 
seemed enhanced by the danger she was in. Finally, the tables were withdrawn, and Caesar arose and placed a garland on his head. The subject of our symposium shall be whether great poetry is the work of men's minds only, or, as some have claimed, it is the prompting of the gods. Now, before we begin, let us hear some verses that we may be reminded of the matter before us. Catullus, you are a poet. You will read. You know my verses, Caesar? I, I know them all by heart. They are not always kind to Caesar. No. You are not angry? I am not angry. Come, 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 boy. Recite to us. What shall it be, then? Well, speak for me the verses that begin, uh, O immortal gods, if pity be... Uh... O immortal gods, if pity be among your attributes, or if ever you have brought supreme aid to one already at the point of death, turn your eyes upon me, a most wretched man. And if I have lived a pure life, tear out from my heart this plague, this pestilence which... Stealing like a lethargy throughout my deepest fibers has driven all joy from my breast. I no longer ask that this woman return my love, nor, for that is impossible, that she be chaste. All I aspire to is that I be healed and that this black malady be removed. O oh, immortal gods, grant this in return for my devotion. Well done, my boy, well done. You speak most movingly. And now, dear Claudia, the first speech of the evening falls to you. So be it. If it be true, O Caesar, that poetry comes among us at the prompting of the gods, then we are indeed miserable. For poetry puts a fairer face on life than life can claim to. It is the most seductive of lies and the most treacherous of counselors. No. Be quiet, boy. Let us speak. Without poetry to beguile them, men would go into battle. Brides would enter marriage. Wives would become mothers and men would bury their dead and themselves in misery and discord. But drunk on poetry, men and women rush toward these events with, with I know not what unbounded expectations. Now it is very certain that poetry is only flattery. It puts to sleep the springs of action. It is an evil. It weakens weakness and it redoubles misery. I will not allow you to say such things. Shush, boy, let us speak. And as be the poets... Feverish dreamers. Poets are men like ourselves, but they are ill and suffering. I pity and despise them. I, I must praise you for your eloquence, Claudia. But you have made our young friend angry. And since I disagree with you, I shall answer for him by telling you the legend of Alcestis. Now, everyone knows that Alcestis, wife of Admetus, king of Thessaly, was the golden pattern of all wives. As a girl, however, marriage was the last thing she wanted. Her heart was filled with one ambition, to become a priestess of Apollo at Delphi. One day, a soothsayer revealed to her that by the will of Jupiter, Apollo had come to live on earth as a man among men. And Apollo had chosen to live as a herdsman outside her very gate. Toward the end of that day, when the stars were first appearing, Alcestis slipped from the palace and went to where five herdsmen were sitting about a fire. She stood at the edge of the firelight and besought Apollo to speak to her and answer the question that was her very life. <laughs> the shepherds were bewildered. Finally, the oldest of them spoke and said, Princess, if there be a god here, I do not know which it is. For thirty days we have walked together, 
drunk from the same wineskin, slept by the same fire, yet, lady, this I shall say, these are no ordinary herdsmen. Uh, that fellow there that's asleep, <laughs> there's no illness he can't cure, snake bite or broken bones, yet, in one town, a child lay dying, and he would not cross the road to save her. So, so I know well that he's no god. And that fellow beside him, that one, you, you there, can't you stop drinking while the princess is looking at you? He never loses his way. In the darkest night he knows his north from his south. But that is his only talent, and I know well that he is not the god of the sun. And the red-haired one, he is no ordinary herdsman either. He performs miracles and wonders. He makes water fall from the treetops, and balls of fire race along the ground. But he is ashamed of his tricks and knows not how he does them. Would a god be ashamed of his miracles? But Alcestis would not be put off so easily. She pointed to the fourth herdsman. That man, said the old one, he, he is our singer. Believe me, when he plays his lyre and sings, lions hang suspended in their leap. He can fill us to the brim with joy or sorrow when we have no reason to either rejoice or grieve. He can make the memory of love more tender than love itself. And then... And then... He... Yes, Caesar, go on. What happened then? Caesar, are you uh, ill? The herdsman said, but he soon rejects the song he has made. He loses joy in the thing he has done. And Alcestis cried, This! This is Apollo! This is the god! I... I, I can't go on. I am Elicinius. Please, please, take me home. Take me... Uh. Master! He had scarcely said the words when Caesar fell to the floor in a convulsion of pain. Whether from the wound he had had or from the fevers that his brain was sometimes subject to, I cannot say. When the agony was over and he fell into a deep sleep, I heard the poet say, Why did you lie to me about this man? Why did you teach me to hate him? I know him now, and he is a different man than I thought him to be. We watched beside Caesar for a time, then placed him in his litter, and the poet and I accompanied him to his home. And the poet and I accompanied him to his home. That is the account of the banquet as set down by Asinius. And now, before I begin the second part of my lecture, I should like to put my notes in order. So, if any of you would care to take a moment or two and step outside for a smoke, you may feel free to do so. Yeah, he's a funny old coot, but it's an interesting lecture. You think so? Yeah. Frankly, I'm bored to death. I don't know why I ever took this course. Let's go out and have a smoke. Okay. From Hollywood, the NBC University Theater is bringing you Henry Hull in a radio version of Thornton Wilder's The Ides of March. If you are interested in supplementing your enjoyment of these NBC University Theater productions with home study under college supervision, be sure to listen to the announcement at the close of this program. And now, our intermission commentator, Dr. Beaumont Brustel, poet, playwright, and professor of English at the University of Tulsa, Dr. Brustel. It is inevitable that writing men should have been and should be concerned with the complexities, the monumental and legendary complexities, of the greatest dictator the world has ever known, Julius Caesar. Almost from the time of Caesar, this has been so. The two greatest English dramatists have tackled Julius Caesar. These two are Shakespeare and Shaw. Shaw has come off brilliantly from the fray. Shakespeare, with only mediocre success, his play about Caesar doesn't belong to Caesar at all. Now, 
a contemporary American writer, Thornton Wilder, has undertaken to tell the story of Julius Caesar in a novel titled From Caesar's Death Day, The Ides of March. The novel first appeared in 1948 and has since been something of a field of controversy for Wilder fans. Whether or not The Ides of March is Wilder's greatest novel is of little importance. What matters is that it is one of the most philosophically profound of the studies of Julius Caesar and one of the most sympathetic. Wilder has shown us that Caesar is fierce, kind, gentle, theatrical, wonderfully self-controlled in spite of his desperate epilepsy, wistful, religiously skeptical, a man philosophically accustomed to being hated, and a profound lover of great poetry. To Caesar, the best of life is the poetry of life. As a result, this man is a practical man who is also a kind of mystic. Next in importance to Caesar in the book is Claudia Pulcher, who is not customarily associated with Caesar in our minds. The genius of Wilder makes her into a remarkable woman, a woman who suffers a poisoned life, a woman with a snake in her soul. Cleopatra is slightly third-rate after this, but in a lesser study, she too would seem extraordinary. Caesar's wife is all that is to be expected, silly and inadequate, and indulged by Caesar. This is the more remarkable when we consider that, as one of Caesar's servants truthfully says, quote, he is always right and she is always wrong. The Ides of March is, in but little sense of the word, a theatrical book, but it is a dramatic book, dramatic in its search under the skins of the characters for the torments and the doubts and the self-seekings that battle there. There are, as a result, few great scenes in the book in a theatrical sense, but the entire book is filled from page to page with the inner turmoil of people, some of whom, Caesar, Claudia, Caesar's aunt, briefly seen, are great people. It is because of the characters that we are able to get excited over the Ides of March, but it is also because of the beauty of speech in which the book is written. Few writers today have Wilder's wonderful gift for putting together words with equal grace and meaning, and Wilder has rarely put words together more gracefully or more meaningfully than in the Ides of March, which may turn out to be, after more years have passed over it, one of the great books of our time. Thank you, Dr. Brustow. Our radio version of the Ides of March, starring Henry Hull, will continue from Hollywood after a brief pause for station identification. Before, before resuming our examination of the letters written by Julius Caesar to Lucius Mamilius Turinus, I think I should tell you that these were days of exceptional brilliance for the Republic of Rome. On October 7th of that year, the celebrated Brutus returned to the city after a year of foreign service as governor-general subjugating the barbarians in southern France. And on October the 10th, just three days later, Cleopatra, Queen of Egypt and Empress of the Nile, arrived in Rome with all due pomp and ceremony to take up residence in a villa on the far side of the Tiber. Yet, strangely enough, in the letter he wrote that week to his friend on the island of Capri, Caesar makes no mention of the youthful Brutus, nor indeed of the Egyptian queen, although the gossips tell us that he and she were something more than friends. No, Caesar's mind was still occupied with the poet Catullus, 
for whom he had conceived a special fondness. Uh, for example, uh, take this passage. Turinus, word has reached me in a very indirect way that the poet has been ill, or at least in extreme distress of mind. Now, isn't that an interesting comment? Few politicians nowadays are much concerned about the welfare of poets. But further on we find him saying, I think at last we have found in this Catullus the greatest of Roman poets. And I say to you in, in all, all gravity, gravity that one of the things in this world that I most envy is the endowment from which springs great poetry. I count great poetry the topmost achievement of man's powers. Oh, to be understood by such an one as Catullus, and to be celebrated by his hand in verses that would not soon be forgotten. And yet he has chosen to glorify Claudia Pulcher, to waste his life in his song for the favors of a harlot whose beauty now, because of him, shall be immortal. Not long ago, there was a plot against my life. And since that time, although against my wishes, the secret police have posted spies within her house. Thus I have come to see reports about the quarrels. She abrades him constantly and treats him as if he were a child. She has often called him to his face an hysterical child. It is too boring to have to deal with an hysterical child. Never try to see me again. You have betrayed me. Broken your promise. I will not be spoken to in such a fashion. I have broken no promises because I made none. I shall live as I choose. You have always been unfaithful. You have always lied to me. You know that I never lie, and that I do not permit people to tell lies in my presence. I've been, as you call it, unfaithful to you on numerous occasions. I do not sleep well at night, and so I arrange for companionship. Oh, Claudia, forgive me. Listen to me this once. L let us go to the country together. We'll be happy there. We, we shall read, we shall walk by the sea... And there'll be no others there. I tell you that there shall always be others. So let us say goodbye. Goodbye, Catalyst. Put me forever out of your mind. Go and do not come to see me again. No. All I ask of you is that you go. I want to be rid of all poets and weaklings. Love is a sickness with you. And I have no patience with the sick. Yes, I am sick with love. A love like mine must speak. It must cry out. Claudia, I have worshipped you, made a goddess of you. Are you insane? From now on, I forbid you, my house. You are not to come here again. Oh, please. Please, we'll speak no more. I did not mean to make you so angry. Forget the cutting things that we have said to one another. You, you call me sick. I am. I have been ill. Despised lovers pretend that they are ill, but this is no pretense. Claudia, do you wish to kill me? If you no longer give me your love, then I shall surely die. Die, then die. I shall be glad. I shall be glad to see you die. Then there is one thing I have left to do. I will insult the universe. I will insult it by making a beautiful thing. That I shall do. And then I'll put an end to this crucifixion that has been my life. When you have done this... I shall think that you were a man. I have seen reports of what has been said there in that house. Poets before have told us of their sufferings and have been cured. But I have reason to believe that Catullus cannot be cured. 
He's resigned all hope of health and is letting himself drift into death. He is letting himself drift into death. Now, students, doesn't that suggest to you that the dictator of all Rome was a man of pity and compassion? Uh, but now, a word about Cleopatra, the witch of the Nile. As I have said, she and Caesar were something more than friends. Cleopatra, although a deceitful, intriguing person and a light-hearted murderess, was nevertheless a remarkable girl with an active mind, a nimble wit, and a genius for administration. It was therefore altogether proper that her arrival in Rome should be celebrated with a magnificent reception. But there was, uh, so to speak, one fly in the ointment. Julius Caesar did not arrive at his appointed hour. We have the word of Asinius Polio, who says, The dictator was late to the reception for the Queen of Egypt, and I observed this made her angry. How is it that the great Caesar does not attend our banquet? Majesty, I cannot say. I have no doubt that affairs of state have kept him at the capital. If Her Majesty wishes. Yes. Who is this? Allow me to present Your Majesty, the Lady Claudia Pulker. Yes, Your Ladyship. If Her Majesty pleases, I can tell her where Caesar may be found. And can you indeed? Yes, Majesty. A servant of mine has brought word that the dictator was seen an hour ago sitting beside the sickbed of Catullus. And who is Catullus? He is a poet, Your Majesty. A revolutionist who has sometimes written verses against our Caesar. I find it hard to credit this report, my lady, that your leader should be in attendance at the sickbed of some, some versifier while I expect him here. This is discourteous of Caesar. Your Majesty, doubtless there is some other explanation. Our great leader himself will be here soon, I'm sure, to offer his apology. It is growing late. They've lighted all the torches. Who is to escort me to the water pageant? I am a queen. I am not used to this waiting. Your Majesty, if I may suggest, Caesar's nephew is close by. He has asked me to present him to you. He has been a great admirer of Your Majesty's beauty. Caesar's nephew, did you say? Yes, He is here, Majesty. Let me present him. Come forward, young man. Your Majesty. Ah, yes. He is a fine young man. I am very glad to know him. Your Majesty is most kind. Will you take your uncle's place tonight and sit beside me on the throne? I should be greatly honored. Then you shall do so. What is your name, young man? My queen, in Rome they call me Mark Antony. I will remember. Take my arm, young man. I'm watching beside the bed of a dying friend, the poet Catullus. From time to time, he falls asleep. I then take up my pen and write, not as much to record my thoughts as to avoid reflection. Death is inevitable. And I can now tell at a glance those men who have not yet foreseen their death, and I, I know them for the children that they are. 
They think by evading the contemplation of death that they are enhancing the savor of life. But the reverse is true. Only those who are constantly aware of death and darkness are capable of praising the sunlight. Each year I say farewell to the spring with a more intense passion because, because I know my death is certain, nay, momently possible. Wait, wait, Carlos is stirring. He's opened his eyes again. Now he will speak. Caesar. Yes, my friend. Will you read to me my mother's letter? It is by my bedside. I should be glad. She is a very simple woman, my mother. A good woman. I understand, my boy. I'll read it to you. It says, Your father has taken on many new duties in the town. He is busy from morning to night. The crops have not been what was expected. Your sister, Ipsithia, had a very bad cold, but is better. Your dogs are well. All Verona knows your poems by heart. Why do you never send them to us? Cecinius' wife brought over twenty of them to us. It is strange that we must receive from a neighbor's hand the one you wrote about your dear brother's death. Your father carries it with him wherever he goes. I pray daily that the immortal gods may protect you. Thank you. Thank you. Another hour has gone by. He is asleep again. <laughs> you know that I am no stranger to deathbeds. I know... What one must do. To those in pain, one talks about themselves. To those in clear mind, one praises the world that they are quitting. There is no dignity in leaving a despicable world, and the dying are often fearful, lest life was not worth the efforts it had cost them. Yes, I... I never short of subjects to praise. He... he is awake again. Caesar? I am here. Caesar, have I lived in vain... Have I wasted my life? No. No, you've written great poetry, Catullus. And the true poet is a country's highest ornament. You have not lived in vain. Caesar, that night, do you remember? Hmm? When she wounded me, when she made mock of my verses in front of you. Hmm. In front of you, Caesar. Mm-hmm, yes. Do you remember? Yes, yes, Catullus. I, I know she is no ordinary woman. There is a greatness about her. And she will be remembered because of you. I have done well to praise her. Yes, you have done well. She has been badly hurt. When one has been hurt very badly, one can do cruel things. Who has hurt her? You, Caesar. I? Yes. I? Yes. I've always known it. It's you she loves. She has not forgotten that you loved her once. And so she sought revenge through me. Can this be true? That is why I've hated you. That is why I wrote the things I did denouncing you. I have been jealous of you, Caesar. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I, jealous of you. <laughs> oh, it was foolish. Tell me, Catullus, who are these friends of yours? Who is this committee of 20? <laughs> All those letters were, were written by me alone. There is no committee of 20. I... Uh-huh. I have failed in all things. No, no, my boy, I assure you. There, you did not fail. Those bulletins of yours have done their damage. Hundreds of thousands have been aroused to patriotic hatred of me, the oppressor. My secret police arrest them every day. Oh, forgive me. I am sorry for this, for I respect you, Caesar. You must rest now, my poor friend. You will not go away? No. 
No, I shall be here. He is sleeping. And during this last hour, I have paid my debt. He has been comforted at least. I have emptied my heart of thanks and praise to him. But if only I could communicate all that I owe to men like this, all my life long, boy and man, soldier and administrator, lover, father, son, sufferer and rejoicer, all the happiness I owe to the genius of poetry, all the wisdom and courage such men have given me, sustained me in despair, kept me alive to beauty and the joy of life. These are our poets. Many things remain unspoken. And now, Catullus too is dead. And now, Catullus too is dead. Historians have demonstrated that Caesar arrived quite late to Cleopatra's reception. So late, in fact, that he surprised the Queen of Egypt in the arms of Mark Antony. Uh, <coughs> yes, well, now, the Ides of March are drawing on apace. On December 12 of the same year, Julius Caesar divorced his wife, Pompeia, and the circumstance came about in this fashion. Note the following letter sent to Turinus on the 10th day of the month. I emerged from my bedchamber this morning to the music of women's voices. Last night, as you know, had occurred the, the ceremonies... ceremonies of the sacred mysteries of the good goddess from time immemorial, the exclusive annual religious function conducted and attended by our Roman matrons of high birth. No man, not even I, has ever been allowed to see these secret rites or to penetrate the sanctum of this holy ceremonial. Of course, the ritual goes on most of the night, so I wasn't in the least surprised that my wife and aunt had visitors this early in the morning. This is the end, really. Our most beautiful and sacred ceremony dragged into the mud. I know, my dear Alina. If I hadn't seen him there with my own eyes, I'd never have believed it. Well, personally, I think it's rather funny. <laughs> Pompeia, dear, uh, you mustn't say such things. Julia, if your nephew Caesar had any proper respect for religion or the old Roman way of life, instead of wasting his time on these newfangled irrigation projects and flood control... Now, and... Alina, we all know your views on those subjects. The question now is, what shall be done with Claudia Pulker and her brother? Uh, good morning, ladies. Oh. Uh, what, of Claudia Pulker? Oh, Kyle. Good morning, nephew. Good morning, great Caesar. What is all this excitement? Don't tell me. <laughs> Don't tell me that someone has abducted the Vestal Virgins. Oh, a most terrible thing has happened, nephew. Last night, Claudia Pulker introduced her brother dressed as a votary into the ceremonies of the good goddess. What? Do you mean in woman's costume? Oh, you should have seen him, dear. Really, he made quite an attractive woman. It has set religion back a thousand years. It's an outrage to Roman uh, motherhood. Now, 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 tell me quite, uh, quite calmly, Aunt Julia, exactly how it happened. Why, why, Caius, our, our singing had been going on for an hour, and the responses. Then suddenly he was recognized. Some women flew at him and tore off his turban and veil. Soon women were striking him from all sides. Others dashed about covering up the sacred things. Poor Clodius. The way they scratched his pretty face. Now really, Pompeia, the way you keep pitying the brute, one would think you were on his side. Well, Clodius didn't mean any harm. It was just his idea of a joke. It is not a matter to joke about, Pompeia. I, I quite agree, Aunt Julia. I promise you that I shall start a thorough investigation of this matter as soon as I get to the capital. Oh. Uh, goodbye, ladies. Oh. Good day. Goodbye, nephew. Goodbye, my wife. Oh. 
Bye-bye, Caius, darling. Bye-bye. Uh, <coughs> Sinius, I suppose our secret police have kept the usual day-to-day reports on the activities of Claudius Pulker? Yes, dictator. Bring them here to me. I have them ready. I was afraid that you would ask for them this morning. And why do you say you were afraid? Read them, Caesar, and you will see. Hmm, yeah. <coughs> the uh, 48th. Yes. Yes, I... I do see a sinews. <sighs> Why wasn't this sorry matter pointed out to me before? Great Caesar, none of us has dared to tell you. And it is verified that Claudius has visited my house in my absence on each of these occasions? It is verified. And he wore the disguises provided for by his sister, as it is reported. Well... Well, well, Asinius, I have survived the Gallic Wars and the campaigns in Africa. I dare say I can survive the faithlessness of women. I've known a great many women in my life, Asinius. Yes, dictator. One marriage in a hundred is happy, my friend. This is one of those things which everyone knows and which no one says, hmm? Yes, dictator. <laughs> Given the nature of women and the nature of the passion which draws men and women together... What chance does marriage have of being happy? By marrying, we place our households into the hands of women and they extend their control, as far as they are able, over all our goods. Women wish only the warmth of a hearth and the shelter of a roof. And to protect this property, there is no deception or rapacity to which they will not resort. All that they ask of a home beyond its shelter is that it be more, more ostentatious than that of a neighbor's wife. All that they ask for their children's happiness is that they be wealthily married. There is much truth in what you say. Sinis, I believe... I believe wives consciously dread and despise their husbands and bring up their daughters to live in such fear and contempt of men that most girls remain ignorant, joyless, and, 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 and brutified all their days. <laughs> Look at me. I have constantly been victimized by women who have been... Who have been made stupid by the greed and prejudice of their mothers. A man may have saved the state, directed the affairs of a world, and acquired an undying fame for wisdom, but to his wife, he is still a witless fool. Oh, oh Pompeo, why? Why did you do it? I am full of sadness, Caesar, that I should have been the bearer of these tidings. Yes. Yes, well, I am rid of her. You may issue an edict in my name saying that I shall divorce my wife tomorrow afternoon. It shall be done. My friend, let us console ourselves with philosophy. That is a realm which women have never entered, indeed, in which they have never taken the faintest interest. And let us welcome that old age which frees us from the desire for their embraces. Embraces which must be paid for at the cost of all order in our lives and any tranquility in our minds. Fortunately, I have reached that age. Hmm? Well, alas, I have not. <laughs> now, what further business do we have before us? The woman, Claudia Pulker, has been brought as you directed. Let her come in. Yes, dictator. Please step inside. You sent for me, mighty Caesar? Yes, it is with regret that I must tell you, Claudia, that appeals have been lodged with me which urge that you and your brother be excluded from the city of Rome. Where is my brother? 
What have you done with him? Well, he's under the care of my physician and unable to be moved at the present time. As you know, he happened to get into the path of some angry women. And you know what cruelty women are capable of. The cruelty of women? That is a slur at me, isn't it? Because of catalyst... You're touchy on that subject. The only reason for which you punish me is that I refuse my love to the poet. No blame attaches to a woman who, being loved, is unable to love in return. But a woman knows well the ways in which she may intensify or mitigate the sufferings of her lover. And neither the persuasion of reason nor the appeal to mercy altered your conduct toward him. His gifts to Rome were of no less consequence than mine. Punish me, then. You and your brother hereby are banished from Rome. You are not to return under penalty of death. I loved you once. And I was once in love with you. Your real punishment, Claudia, is yet to come, and exile is the least of it. In a year or two, your beauty will be gone, and that, for a woman of your kind, is the hardest punishment of all. Uh, you may go now. This is goodbye, then. You despise me. I understand that. But you have a responsibility toward me. You made me what I am. You, a monster, have made me a monster. I can endure my life in exile because I know that I shall be revenged. I have planted the seeds of rebellion. I've sharpened their knives, and I shall be revenged. And it will not be long. Hail and farewell, great Caesar. Health and long life to the dictator. And so I say, goodbye. Ah, Sidney, what other business do we have? There is a gift that has come, and with it a note from the Queen of Egypt. Another note? Here, here, let me see. Oh, yes, yes, the usual. She, uh... <laughs> She begs my forgiveness. It was not her fault. The ardent Antony compromised her by blandishment and force, and so forth and so forth. Oh. <coughs> and where's the gift? Here, dictator. Hmm? Oh, yes, 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 yes. The juice of juniper berries mixed with wormwood and honey. <coughs> it's an old Egyptian remedy, and Sinius guaranteed to, to cure baldness. It'll keep your head purple for a week. Do you have your stylus? Yes, Caesar. And write me down a note to be delivered to the Queen of Egypt. My dear Cleopatra, you are long since forgiven for your indiscretion. I know my nephew's habits very well, and, and thank you, my pearl, my lotus, for the magic salve you have sent me. Now, I am neither a doctor nor a magician, but this one thing I know. A man can have either hair or brains, but he can't have both. I'm quite handsome enough as I am, and since the immortal gods gave me good sense, I think they didn't mean for me to have curls. I'm sending you my star and phoenix a bottle of Syrian perfume, and since I am disengaged, I shall call at your villa later in the evening. You still have my heart. There is no woman in the world who can compare with the great queen of Egypt. There is no woman in the world who can compare with the great queen of Egypt. And now a fragment of the last letter written to Turnus on the morning of the 15th day, the Ides of March, in the year 44 B.C. It begins, 
By the immortal gods, I... I am angry. Each day new plots against me are discovered. It is a charge that I am a thief of liberty, monster of greed and murderer of the Republic. In the eyes of my enemies, there is no good in me. I had a dream of death last night. The same dream that has come to me many times before. In it, the dead call out to me in mockery from their grave clothes, and generations still unborn cry out in agony and pain. Life, life has this mystery that we dare not say whether it is good or bad, senseless or controlled. When I regard the clownish parade of mortal life, I, I, I sometimes wonder if the universe knows that we are here. Flood or folly, fire or madness may destroy us at any time. And yet, yet there is a pattern. I have for many years, dear friend Tullinus, had your example to profit by. Since the day that you were wounded, I have been nourished by your wisdom and your patience and your gaiety of heart. There must be purpose in a world that can provide us with examples of such courage. My wife, Cleopatra, my wife, Calpurnia, has advised me not to go to the Senate today. The wild winds of March are blowing, and with them fly the customary rumors of plots and counterplots. But I shall go to the Senate. I am expected there sharp on the hour, and I must not be late. Here Caesar's last letter breaks off. We have the account of his assassination, of course, handed down by Suetonius. When he saw that he was surrounded on all sides by drawn daggers, he wrapped his head in his robe, at the same time drawing the folds about his feet with his left hand. One of the caskers plunged a dagger into him just below the throat, and when he tried to rise... He was held down by another stab. In this manner, then, he was stabbed twenty-three times. He said no word, merely groaned at the first stroke. But when Marcus Brutus fell upon him, he said in Greek, You too, my son. All the conspirators took themselves off and left him lying there, dead. Well, as I said to begin with, it is by no means certain that these letters are genuine. But they are interesting, and I offer them for what they are worth. Thank you for your attention. I am sure we're all grateful to Professor Willard for coming here today. May I remind you to pass out to the rear of the hall. Oh, yes, the administration wishes me to announce that there will be a football rally tonight in the gymnasium. You have been listening to The Ides of March, an NBC University Theater production of the novel by Thornton Wilder, starring Henry Hull as Caesar. If you wish to expand your knowledge and appreciation of literature we suggest that you might enjoy the college-supervised courses now being offered in connection with the NBC University Theater. These courses are offered by the University of Tulsa in Oklahoma, Kansas State Teachers College, and the University of Louisville. For full information as to how you may enhance your knowledge through these home study courses, write to NBC University Theater in care of the University of Louisville, Louisville, Kentucky, the University of Tulsa, Tulsa, Oklahoma, 
or Kansas State Teachers College, Pittsburgh, Kansas. Let me repeat that. For full information, write to NBC University Theater in care of the University of Louisville, Louisville, Kentucky, the University of Tulsa, Tulsa, Oklahoma, or Kansas State Teachers College, Pittsburgh, Kansas. Next week, be with us again at the NBC University Theater. At that time, we will bring you a dramatization of one of the best-loved books of our time, James Hilton's gently beautiful novel, Goodbye, Mr. Chips, starring as Mr. Chips, Herbert Marshall. And the following week, a radio version of J.P. Marklin's current bestseller, Point of No Return. The Ides of March was prepared for radio by Brainerd Duffield and Emerson Crocker. Starred as Julius Caesar was Mr. Henry Hull. Our cast included Charles Seal, Harley Bear, Georgia Bacchus, Doris Singleton, Jan Arvan, Lynn Allen, Ben Wright, Maya Gregory, Larry Dobkin, Ida Reese Marin. Your announcer, Don Stanley. Our intermission commentator was Dr. Beaumont Brustel, whose commentary was recorded. The original music score was composed and conducted by Dr. Albert Harris. The director of the NBC University Theater is Andrew C. Love. This program came to you from Hollywood. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. The radio version of Thornton Wilder's novel, The Ides of March, broadcast in the summer of 1949, the year after the book's publication, and broadcast on this Ides of March as the final offering of the big broadcast tonight. For co-producer Jill Arold Bailey and audio engineer Douglas Bell, this is Murray Horwitz. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, and please join us here next Sunday. Good night, everybody. I love to spend each Sunday with you. As friend of friend, I'm sorry it's through. I'm telling you just how I feel. I hope you feel that way too let's make a date for next Sunday night I'm here to stay it will be my delight to sing again bring again the things you want me to I love to spend each Someday with you. On to more recommended stories. Hand-cutting letters into the stone walls of memorials or museums is a dying craft, but there are still a few carvers keeping the practice alive. WAMU's arts and culture reporter, Michaela LaFrac, talks to one whose work is all over Washington. So what are you working on? 
I'm carving an M, and you have to really, really carefully massage the thing into existence. Inside the National Gallery of Art, Nick Benson is updating the list of the gallery's trustees by carving names into the limestone wall. We've got a zinc mallet and uh, a chisel that has a brazed carbide tip. Benson's based in Rhode Island, but he spends a lot of time in D.C. He's 55, and he's been carving at the National Gallery since he was 18. Working with the gallery's soft limestone feels like coming home. When I come down here and I sink a chisel into this wall, it's like, oh my God, it's so freaking awesome.